All right, any of you who are in this room who want to hang with us uh, this hour, we're going to start. I'm going to be standing up here. I don't think there's a little podium or anything, but uh, if you want to come closer, that'd be great. I mean, I don't mind spraying the room all across the... Uh, yeah, I don't bite really. I'll, I serve towels and soap with my shower, though, so uh, yeah. Is there a music stand anywhere? Should, oh, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much, Micah. Yeah, and I won't need this for, for today. We have an outline. Oh, there she is. Look at me. Just, she's got it all covered. So, got a little outline for you. And I know there's a number of different uh, uh, things going on this morning at this hour. And looking forward to being with everybody at the lunch hour. And thrilled that you all are here. I haven't met all of you, but most of you I have. Uh, I'm going to just have you just tell us who you are and where you serve, just so the other guys in the room know who you are as well. That'd be helpful. And then we will we'll jump in together. So uh, we'll start with Jacob in the corner back there. Very cool. Kind of a crusade, uh, camp's crusade kind of thing, he said. So, which is now called crew, I guess. But yeah. So, all right, Robert. Mm. Great. Yeah, it's good to get acquainted with you, Robert. Wow. <laughs> wow. And that's something you had at Easter off, didn't you? So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, I bet. Good to meet you. Right here. Excellent. Good to see you, Andrew. Excellent. Back here. Okay, very good. Well, I, I passed, my last pastor was in the Twin Cities, and uh, my worship pastor was named Brian Vaughn, and he had your hairline. You guys could be twins. Just flip the word, the you know, letters around in the first uh, first name there. So nice to see you, Byron. Jason. Okay, great. Oh, thank you, sir. That's a high-powered music stand deliverer there. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> And it's good to get to know you too, Jason. Thank you. All right, David. Yeah, Conroe Bible. Are you a DTS grad? Yeah, I, I, I usually peg anybody who pastors a Bible church in Texas. They must come out of Dallas. But uh, yeah, it's probably a overreach. But yes, sir. Very good. Good. Well, appreciate you guys being here, and I know um, the Acts 29 guys are meeting and some others, but look forward to sharing with you. And uh, I'll try to, to walk through some of the material as quickly as I can, so we have some time for Q&A. Uh, before I pray, just a little bit of background. Um, I probably won't share a lot of this in the main session, but um, I, I was actually involved in a church plant right out of seminary up in the Seattle area, where I became a diehard Seahawks fan, sorry about that, uh, for 30 plus years now. Uh, through thick and thin, um, and uh, we 
really went with a team. It was really a great experience. Uh, after that, I was out of the blue um, called from Southern California by a guy named John MacArthur. Some of you heard of that. Worked for him for several years. I know when you mention his name, you either pucker or duck, but uh, uh, it was a great experience in terms of just learning and watching him and his passion for the Word. I was his personal assistant, associate pastor, so uh, uh, pretty up close and personal. Very, very godly man. And then became a senior pastor of a church in San Jose. Uh, followed a guy who had been there for 28 years. Church had grown from... Uh, 60 to 6,000 had planted a number of daughter churches. Unfortunately, um, on a Father's Day, he announced that he'd had uh, an affair. Turned out to be multiple affairs that had been covered up for eight years. So the church imploded. They lost half of their income, their giving, uh, their attendance. And I came in at the ripe age of 30, uh, had a tiger by the tail. Uh, I would say I was there as long as he was because the four years I was there in dog years equaled his 28. Uh, and some of you might be in your dog years right now. Uh, but God really began to implant a uh, sense of desperation and hunger in my heart, realizing that if we didn't pray and see God do something miraculous, this place was toast. And God did some, some really amazing things. And the church is doing really well now. A guy named Chip Ingram pastors it today. Uh, but in the history of the church, I just got the short straw. You know, I got the, the fun chapter. But it was a great lesson in brokenness and desperation and prayer. And God really began to plant some, some deep things in my heart about the transformational nature of prayer, not just therapeutic in terms of helping people feel better about their knee replacement, but the, ther the, the transformational dynamic, what prayer does in a church and in people's lives. Um, from there, I was called to Sacramento, California, uh, where I pastored almost 12 years. Uh, that was a church... I was sharing with one of the brothers earlier, I followed the only pastor they had ever had for 40 years. So that's just a different flavor of pain now, right? And um, But again, we were able to plant a number of churches that outgrew the mother church. It was very exciting. Um, and yet in that very traditional situation, again, God did some phenomenal things to just transform the life of the church. Uh, which resulted in some extraordinary advancements in missions, uh, church planting, as I mentioned. Uh, really, humanly, wish I would have spent my whole life there, but God knew what the plan was, um, obviously, from a long-term perspective. Uh, we love Sacramento. We go back off and have dear friends there. But God basically hijacked me at that point, after 20 years in California, to Minnesota. So you know it had to be God, right? Um, I remember leaving uh, Sacramento at the end of a prayer summit. It was like 80 degrees in January, you know, and landed in, in, um, in the Twin Cities. It was 20 below zero, 17 inches of snow, thinking, what in the world have I done? Uh, this church had just relocated. Uh, they had a total debt of $28 million. Uh, Part of that was a, was a shortfall in their capital campaign. Uh, they'd built this 350,000 square foot facility, 4,200 seat auditorium. I mean, the thing was massive. And um, six weeks into the new building, they found out their pastor was having an affair. So you say, man, not only are you bald, you're stupid, right? So uh, you can basically summarize my ministry in three words, dumb, dumber, and dumber, right, in terms of the difficulty level. Uh, but God did an amazing thing. Uh, we, we knew we needed to infuse an extraordinary spirit of prayer into the church. 
Uh, one of the things I did right away is we chartered an airplane, which is kind of crazy. My whole annual salary is on the move with this one, but chartered an airplane to fly 180 people on an early Tuesday morning to JFK, jump on a subway, show up at Brooklyn Tabernacle, spend the day with Pastor Symbol and his staff, and, and see their Tuesday night prayer meeting so that we could infuse some vision into our church about the need to really seek the Lord. And God, again, did some amazing things. Uh, in the years I was there, we were able to retire the 10 million dollar cash shortfall, uh, pay down a lot of the debt. The church is flourishing today. But by then, what I'm doing now uh, was beginning to really expand, and I needed to kind of make a choice. So when our kids all got out of high school, uh, my wife and I said, let's try this. And most guys get to the top of the mega church pile and ride the gravy train into the sunset. Instead, I jumped off the cliff without a parachute and became a full-time spiritual pyromaniac. And uh, so that was 10 years ago. I had to raise support. Uh, the economy was crashing, and one of my buddies says, good thing it was a prayer ministry, you would have never made it, right? And the Lord provided. And so uh, we now have a, a, a good staff team, about six people. Robert, raise your hand. Robert's our newest staff member. Uh, he's in charge of ministry development, a number of things we're doing with coaching and uh, a pastor's fellowship called the 6-4 Fellowship, which I'll mention at lunch. So that's kind of my story. And so the last 10 years, just by faith, um, just trusting the Lord to help us take the school of hard knocks lessons I learned about the transformational nature of prayer and help encourage my colleagues and connect them to one another to make prayer the priority that the Bible makes very clear it should be, uh, but in practice isn't always the case. So uh, I'm honored that you guys are here. And gal, thank you. Nice to have a, a lady among us. And you have an outline. I don't know if those of you just walked in got it or not. I'm not sure where the extras are either, but um, they're somewhere on here, Robert. Do you know uh, where Micah took the extra outlines. Uh, okay, oh, here they are. They're right up here on this table. My bad. All right, super. Thank you. So I want to talk to you about a culture of prayer and um, hopefully some practical lessons that will help you. I'll try to leave some time for some Q&A so we can interact a little bit. I want to watch my clock here and uh, we'll hopefully have a, a good time together. So let me pray and we'll jump in. Father, thank you this morning. You know our hearts. You know what we're struggling with. You know uh, Lord, the beginning from the end, um, you know why we took our last step, why we are where we are now and where we're headed. And uh, we just thank you that we can trust you now to use these moments for eternal purposes uh, to allow us to be uh, continually invested in intimacy with you and uh, an abiding life that brings forth fruit, not just personally, uh, but within the spiritual families where you've placed us. So uh, I pray that you'd help me to be an encouragement and help and allow this to really give each of these dear friends tools to continue to honor you through a culture of prayer in their ministries. And we pray this for Christ's sake and his honor. Amen. Amen. So a number of points here, and we'll just kind of walk through them briefly and then interact a little bit. First thing I learned over the years was that a prayer culture is not a prayer program. All right, that doesn't sound like rocket science. Uh, one of the privileges I've had, though, over in recent years uh, is to do a number of events with Pastor Jim Symbol. In fact, this fellowship I was mentioning earlier was actually launched here in Houston uh, by Pastor Jim and me and about 30 other pastors, one of whom is Jeff Wells here in the area. Um, 
and uh, so Jim and I did a number one day things. I've probably taken 1,200 people to the Brooklyn Tabernacle over the years. And uh, one of the things he and I have interacted a lot about is people will go, for example, and you may not be aware of Brooklyn Tab, but they'll go to their Tuesday night prayer meeting, which is just really profound, several thousand people every week. And a pastor will go home, and you can imagine what he thinks he's going to do next to get prayer going in his church. He's going to start a Tuesday night prayer meeting, right? And so he gets all excited, announces it, put posters over the urinals, you know, just make sure everybody's all jacked up about it. And the first night they have a couple hundred people, and the next week it's 100. You know, two months later they're down to 25. After about three months, it's the pastor and his dog, and his dog's a Catholic, so he gives up on it, you know. And, and he figures, well, it doesn't work. And he thinks that somehow just initiating more prayer activity, which is a good thing, is going to literally create a praying church, and that's not always the case. Because what tends to happen... Prayer gets siloed, as I would describe it, and you basically have the same small group of prayer-motivated people going to all the prayer events, and the rest of the church is pretty much uh, detached from that. And uh, so uh, that's not the goal. Again, creating programs can be a good thing, but prayer does not want to be viewed as actually a ministry of the church or a department of the church. It has to be a, a much deeper reality than that. So one of the first clarifications, it's not just a matter of starting more prayer activity, it's going for something much deeper, which you all understand, and that is that prayer becomes deeply embedded in the culture of the church. So number two is a corollary to that, and that is this. A prayer culture always emanates from the epicenter of church leadership. I have the privilege of uh, doing coaching more intensely with some churches, um, none in Houston, uh, but uh, one of them in Austin, a church called Hill Country Bible uh, a number of others. And, and when I do this with these churches, I ask two questions up front. Number one, how much time does your leadership team spend in prayer? And number two, what kind of prayer is it? And what I mean by that is that the, the prayer dynamic in the church at large is never going to exceed the passion for prayer that exists within the core of leadership. And if our leadership meetings are basically praying so that we can get on to business, uh, we're going to have a church that prays just so they can get on to business. And, uh, but the second question, I think, is maybe even more important. What kind of praying is it? And so there's a difference between getting together as a team and praying about things like the Easter program, the Easter follow-up, the people who are having hip replacements next week, or whatever the case. There's between praying about things and seeking God. And what I would suggest, and you guys know this, the early church advanced not out of praying about things, they advanced out of seeking the Lord. Uh, in the upper room, you don't see any grocery list of needs that they're going over. They're not talking about, you know, somebody's plumbing broke down or whatever. They're just seeking the Lord. And, and really, by inference, out of the Word of God, because they were prompted out of the Word to then replace Judas, as you remember. And in Acts 13, the second half of the book of Acts, you see them in Antioch as missions is launched, uh, again, fasting and ministering to the Lord. Uh, they, they didn't really have an agenda or a list of needs. They were just seeking God. I would suggest to you the most definitive thing we can do as leaders is to spend substantive time simply seeking God and His agenda for the church. Uh, we've all got plenty of our own agendas. The key is to find the Holy Spirit's agenda, and that doesn't come by just informing Him of, of all of the, the needs, but it comes out of seeking Him for who He is. And so I would suggest to you that, that a culture of prayer is always going to emanate from the epicenter of church leadership. Why? 
Well, because the prayer virus, if I could describe it in those terms, is always hatched within the leadership team and then spreads through those leaders into every fabric of the church. Uh, and if it's not doing that, then it is going to ultimately just be a program or some guy's, you know, drum that he's beating. It's not really becoming the DNA of everything that happens. And I often say this way, the prayer level of any church will never rise any higher than the personal passion and example of the senior leader. And that's not to make you feel guilty. I'm just telling you, I've never seen an exception to that. Uh, you can't point the way, you have to lead the way. And uh, so that has to begin within the leadership core. Now, I mentioned Hill Country uh, in Houston, Pastor Tim Hawks. One of the, the things that, that they discovered is that for years, their elders, um, and they still do, I, I think, uh, met two hours every Friday morning. And uh, for a long time, they would open in prayer and close in prayer. It's what I affectionately call zipper prayer. You zip the meeting open, you zip it closed. Uh, and they would meet for two hours, try to get all their work done. And a number of years ago, they changed the paradigm. They decided we're going to pray for the first hour. We're going to have an elder bring a devotional about a character of God, an attribute of God. We're just going to worship God and see how the Spirit leads us to pray. And then we'll meet for an hour. And to the man, they testify, we get way more done in the hour that remained after we prayed for an hour than we ever got done when we simply opened and closed the meeting in prayer. It's a great example of the need to make prayer vital in the epicenter of your leadership team. All right? Uh, number three, a prayer culture is fueled by experience and not explanation. Now, that's a pretty obvious truth as well. I have a buddy, uh, Rick Stedman, who pastored a large church in the Sacramento, and I was there. We were having breakfast one day uh, in February, and he was reflecting on the previous year at his church, and he said, uh, he said, you know, last year I preached on prayer 52 Sundays. I said, dude, man, I'm, I mean, I'm kind of a prayer guy, but I, you know, I don't have 52 sermons on prayer. I said, how'd that work? He said it was a miserable failure. And I said, well, don't you believe in the sufficiency of the Word? He said, well, that's not it. He said, basically, all I did was increase the gap between their learning and their obedience. He said, I've learned that people don't learn to pray out of sermons on prayer. I said, so what are you going to do? He said, I had an aha moment. I'm going to start praying. So I'm going to invite people to join me. I said, really? Well, I'll look forward to hearing how it works. Well, obviously, a year later, as you can imagine, God was doing something really profound because he was teaching his people to pray by praying with them. And of course, in the course of that, he was learning more about prayer himself at the same time. But it's a good illustration that it's more caught than taught. Uh, one of the things then I would suggest, because what I probably opened up with was a little counterintuitive, telling you not to start more prayer programs, but... Um, one of the th other things I've learned in my relationship with Jim Cimbala is the Brooklyn Tabernacle, maybe like some of your churches, uh, was started, uh, uh, at least restarted back in their very embryonic days, around a weekly prayer meeting, right? They, they call that the engine of everything they do. Uh, they make it clear Tuesday night is the most important meeting of the week. So everything in the church revolves around a Tuesday night prayer meeting. I stepped into churches that were already over-programmed, over-busy, over-scheduled, and so trying to get people to come to a weekly prayer meeting was like pushing water uphill, right? So uh, what I learned is that in a church plant, you have a great opportunity to make prayer central in whatever form the Lord leads you, uh, hopefully starting with your leadership team, right? Uh, but in an established church, that's a hard sell to add that on to everything. And so what I learned is that in an already established church, an all-church prayer meeting rarely becomes the engine of the prayer culture. But in time, it can be the expression of the prayer culture. 
In other words, when it becomes part of the culture of the church, people are then excited about making the opportunity to pray together, whether it's weekly, monthly, quarterly, uh, a priority. So what I talk about is this idea, uh, being here in Texas, you might be familiar with this, of building sidewalks where the footpaths already exist. You see that in the notes. And I forget which university it was, you, some of you know this, that would build their new buildings and put the sidewalks in and the students didn't use them. So they eventually decided we're going to build a building, see where the footpaths are and put the sidewalks there, right? So here's the point when it comes to prayer. I think one of the most important things to do, whether you're in a church plant or whether you're in an established church, is to equip people to infuse life-giving prayer into the already existing environments where they are connecting anyway. Because then you're not taking away, you're not adding more time, you're just utilizing the time that exists. And what I mean by that is training, well, let's talk about the sidewalks. Let's just kind of break that down. So your smallest side uh, footpath, rather, where people are connecting would be one-on-one conversations, right? Uh, one of the, the best things the Lord helped me understand was to continue to encourage our people, even equip them, to pray for one another when they're having conversations, right? Uh, we used to have, um, and we'll get into this, but we used to have prayer summits, which were two or three day events where we would go away with no agenda uh, in our church. Uh, and we had anywhere from 70, one time 250 people who went away to a retreat center with no agenda just to seek the Lord for two or three days. I was thrilled about that. Uh, we would have morning prayer meetings. We would have men's prayer times, you know, all church prayer times. But I told my people, what thrills me the most is when I'm walking through the lobby and I see you stopping and praying for one another. That's when I know we've got a prayer culture really happening. So that's your smallest footpath, right? What's your biggest footpath where people are already getting together? Yeah, Sunday morning. Yeah, well, that wasn't a trick question. Sunday morning or Saturday whenever you had church. Well, here's the rub. The question is, how much time are we giving to prayer in our weekly services? Now, most people say, oh, well, prayer's not seeker-friendly. Well, last time I checked, more people out there pray than read their Bible, actually. I mean, one stat said 90% of people pray. Now, some might pray to a tree or to a statue or whatever, but they understand prayer. Now, the the question is, how are we going to model for them that it's a priority? How are we going to show them how to do it? How are we going to get that infused into the hearts of our people if we're not demonstrating it ourselves in the most opportune moment when people are already getting together, right? So I'll give you an illustration. When I pastored in Minnesota, again, this is a very large church, So, and some of you have learned, will learn, the bigger the church, the more diluted the motivation is for people to come. Uh, because in a large church, you've got all kinds of people show up just to hide out, right? And so, you know, we certainly weren't going to spend 10 minutes having people holding hands, singing Kumbaya, right? I mean, that, that just was not going to happen in that environment. But that did not mean... Uh, that we couldn't teach them how to pray by modeling prayer in our worship services. Now, we had no flexibility in terms of how long our services went, unless I just wanted to irritate the children's workers every week. I mean, we had to end on time, get the parking lot cleared, you know, get the children's turned around, all that stuff. But what we realized, we have 75 minutes here. Why are we scripting this thing to 75 minutes? Half the time with some stuff that doesn't have to take as much time as we think it does. So we literally got to the point where we only scheduled 65, 68 minutes of the service so that what? So that we would have flexibility to incorporate prayer into the fabric of the morning service. And sometimes we knew where that was going to be. Sometimes we didn't. 
Sometimes Brian, not Byron, but Brian Vaughn, our worship guy, would stop halfway through a worship song, and he'd pause and he'd take a line of that song and he would pray it or he would prompt people to pray it in their own hearts or he'd give them cues as to how to pray that truth for someone next to them. Or he'd have some people raise their hand if they were struggling with issue Z, whatever it is, and then we would all pray for those people around us. You see, uh, we, we want our people to pray, we just, we're not showing them how. And we're not building a prayer sidewalk on the footpath of our morning worship services. And so, again, it can be done in a very sensitive way. Uh, you know, you can call people up to pray who you know have, you know, a freedom to do that. But uh, the question is, we want a praying church, but if we're not modeling it in the most important footpath that exists on a weekly basis, then we basically are shooting ourselves in the foot. Now, in between those two, there's all kinds of other footpaths, aren't there? Small group leaders, uh, adult classes, um, ministry teams. So uh, what I learned I had to do is I had to relentlessly continue to equip every ministry leader to, to lead life-giving prayer experiences. Now, that's a generic term, life-giving prayer experiences. What I mean by that, and we'll get into that a little bit later, is um, I call it Scripture-fed, Spirit-led, worship-based prayer. So for an example, in a small group, you've been studying who knows what, you know, the um, the goodness of God or whatever. Well, instead, as we typically do, saying now it's time to pray. Does anybody have any, what? Prayer requests. And then you spend 12 minutes writing down all the failing body parts, all the trips, all the crises, and you do a one-minute alley-oop at the end, and you call that a prayer time, right? So, so the key, what if we changed what that prayer time looked like in every small group? What if we changed what that prayer time looked like in every ministry team meeting? What if we changed the way that prayer time looked like, uh, you know, in adult classes? And we equip those leaders to instead say, so now it's time to pray. So let's look at one of the passages we study tonight and let's see what it tells us about God. And let's begin by worshiping him. And then out of that worship, let's then move into praying about the things the Lord puts on our heart. You could even have a scribe at that point writing down the prayers that are prayed. If people have to have a prayer list, and you could email that out to everyone. And here's my point, and it's very, there's a little bit of a sidebar, but in its very simplest breakdown, the Lord's Prayer, which we'll talk about more at lunch, is the model prayer. Jesus did say, pray this way. It wasn't a suggestion, right? And we're good at quoting it, but we always freelance in how we actually pray, or we just do what traditionally we've always done. But if you break that prayer down, its most fundamental part, there's two parts to it. The first half is all Godward. The second half is all manward. First half is what? Our Father who art in heaven, how be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. As it, it's all about him. Second half of the prayer, it's all about us. Give us this day, our daily bread, us, 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 our. Uh, so the way I describe this, like in a small group environment where you don't have a lot of time, is very simple. He is worthy and we are needy. Godward, manward. He is worthy, we are needy. So begin to train your people in every environment to pray that way. Our prayer is going to start with the worthiness of God, His character, His will, His kingdom. Then we're going to move to our needs. And basically, you relentlessly have to begin to retrain your people to seek God's face before they seek His hand. And uh, that's an uphill battle because people are very stuck in their traditions, but it is one that is worth winning. If you're going to build a culture prayer, just to reiterate, you've got to learn to build these prayer sidewalks where the footpaths already exist. 
And that takes just a lot of relentless training, equipping, modeling. But I will tell you this, I'm not just a, a paid salesman, I'm a satisfied customer, all right? I'll tell you this, it will transform the lives of the people in your church. Uh, and it's a very um, practical model to help them in their own prayer life, uh, learning out of what they've experienced together, all right? Any questions to this point? I want to make sure. Any, any questions, comments, suggestions, or snide remarks before we jump into these next points? All right, we'll keep going. If you think of something, throw a book at me or raise your hand or whatever. All right, number four. This one I'm very passionate about. I'll try to make it quick. But a prayer culture is rooted in clarity and conviction about community. All right, that's kind of a, a big word these days, community. But I'm specifically referring to prayer. And you see some of my notes here. Uh, you know, often I'll be asked, well, which is more important, private prayer or corporate prayer? My answer is yes. It's like asking which leg do you need to walk on more, your right leg or your left leg? Uh, I've had the privilege of teaching some prayer classes back east at Liberty uh, College and Seminary. They have a lot of students there from South Korea. And very commonly, several times, I've actually heard a South Korean student ask a Western student, why do you pray by yourself? Now that blows our circuits, right? But to them, it makes no sense that you're trying to figure out how to pray on your own when you could be in community learning to pray uh, as part of the, the body of Christ. And as you might guess, five o'clock every morning, the prayer chapel is filled with the sound of Korean praise and passionate prayer. But we have lost that in Western society. And you see some of the notes here. Gene Getz, who you Dallas guys would obviously know very well, uh, notes in one of his books that the reason for that is we are marked in Western society by rugged individualism. We think in terms of I, me, and my rather than we, our, and us. And he goes on to make the point we, we literally reinterpret the Bible through that lens in contradiction to its original intent. And he says, I appreciate all that we've written in Western society about personal prayer, personal spirituality. But he makes the point, why have we neglected the primary New Testament emphasis on corporate prayer, corporate spirituality? He makes the point that all the commands to pray in the epistles were assumed to be commands to pray together, not just on your own. And one of the little factoids that, that verifies that is prior to the printing press, the only way to even receive truth was in community, Right? And so, for example, when Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, pray without ceasing, um, you know, we'll read that in our copy of the Bible. Our immediate application is I, right? I should always have an attitude of prayer. And you should, by the way. But here's what I think the Thessalonians heard. You'll like this in Texas. All y'all, don't stop praying together. So picture that. The letter's being read in community, and it says pray without ceasing. And feel free to extrapolate the Greek if you want, because it underscores this point. But what they heard was don't stop praying together. Pray without ceasing. You see, they instinctively applied things corporately and then individually. We do it the opposite, and we are not better for it. And so one of the reasons we don't have a culture prayer in our church is because often as leaders, we don't have a conviction about the fact that if we're going to be a New Testament church, we have got to pray together, right? In Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves, you remember what it was? Apostles teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and literally the prayers. So we don't think about this, but back then the only way to experience any of those was to show up, right? You couldn't download ApostlePeter.com and go jogging with him in your earbuds, right? If you wanted to have the Word, you had to be there. Fellowship? You had to be there. 
If you have fellowship by yourself, go see a doctor. They can help you with some medication, right? Uh, breaking a bread, you had to be there. But what do we do in Western society? Oh, prayer, you go into your closet and you figure out how to do that on your own. I'll give you a few sermons and I'm going to hope for the best. It's like the coach of a baseball team pulls his team of young guys together every week, you know, and he gives a baseball speech and he shows them a glove and he shows them a bat and he talks about a ball and he talks about the history of baseball, the heart of a baseball, you know, all three points start with the same letter, you know, the hope of baseball. He, he shows them how to swing and then he sends them all home to practice baseball by themselves. And the fear is that why do we never win a game? And you say, man, that dude's elevator does not go to the top floor, right? Well, let's be honest. I'll be honest. For years, that's how I thought I was going to develop a praying church. I was going to give sermons on baseball. I'm going to show them how to swing the bat. And I'm going to tell you, now you go home and figure this out on your own. And no wonder we haven't experienced something supernatural in the life of our congregation. Um, I would just say this, too. It's a little bit controversial, but in Matthew 6, well, I'll tell you this story. I had an elder one time say to me, Daniel, I'm not coming to our prayer times. Uh, I said, why not, Bob? He said, well, two reasons. Number one, the Bible says, don't pray to be seen by men. And if I showed up, I would just be coming, you know, for show. And he said, secondly, the Bible says, pray in your closet. So I'm going to stay home and pray on my own. I said, well, would you like some feedback? And he said, sure. I had to ask permission. He was an elder. You know, he could have requested my resignation at the next meeting. But I said, would you like some feedback? He said, sure. I said, well, number one, why don't you change your motive and come? You can do that. I mean, I, we can talk about five, six other motives other than being seen by men. I said, secondly, uh, we need to renovate your closet because that sucker is way too small. Uh, and, and you can figure this out on your own. Western commentators don't even capture this. I remember the first time I began to make the discovery, I sent my, my thoughts to both MacArthur and a guy named Earl Rodmacher, who's president of a seminary. And they both called. They said, this is very New Testament, but it is a hard sell in Western society. The word for closet, which is tamion, is used four times in the New Testament. It's a general word for a room or an inner room. Uh, the only version that uses the word closet is the old King James 1611, right? But man has that idea stuck with us because we love the idea of just, you know, again, a solitary approach to prayer. And again, I'm not saying you shouldn't have a personal prayer life. Getz would tell you that the way you learn to have a personal prayer life is out of corporate experience. And I believe that's true as well. Um, who's the guy, Robert, I'm having a brain fade, the, the professor we asked, to teach our conference, writes all the books, um, reform guy, Carson, D.A. Carson. Yeah, Carson says the best way to learn to pray is by praying with others who know how to pray, right? But again, that's not Western culture. Um, and interestingly, if you look at that passage, Jesus says, now when you pray, and the, the Greek is plural, so he says in Matthew 6, when, when all y'all pray, don't pray like those guys, because when they get together, they're just parading their spirituality with the wrong motive. And don't pray like those guys, because when they pray, they're trying to work up their gods to do what they want. But when y'all pray, go into your tamion, whatever that is, and when you shut the door where the Father sees in secret, which I really believe is a reference to your heart, uh, and also in contradiction to praying out in public to be seen, uh, when you pray, pray this way. Now, this is not a big discovery. What's the first word of the prayer? Hour. Yeah. You ever thought about that? All the words are plural in the prayer. So either some weirdo is in his closet talking in plural pronouns, who again needs to see a doctor, or this was something about praying together, right? 
And if you look at that, what did they do then? Well, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all in little prayer cubicles trying to figure out how to pray, but they heard some wind noise, and so they all ran together, and they jumped into the inner room so they could get in on the action. That's not what it says. They were all together in one place, right? And that's how the early churches moved forward. They, they understood what Jesus was saying. I would just add this little caveat. I took my wife to Scotland when she turned 40, and this is one of numerous illustrations, but there's a place called Holyrood House in Edinburgh, and one of the things you tour when you go there is called the King's Closet. And I remember when we were taking the tour, I saw that on the sign. I said, why are we looking in the King's Closet? I'm thinking, that's kind of crazy. I mean, maybe he had more shoes than Imelda Marcos or something. I don't know. Um, and when we did the tour, we came into this room with sofas and chairs and tables. And the tour guide said, this is the King's Closet. I'm thinking, what? And he said, in his closet, the King would meet with people, dignitaries, friends, relatives, to be called into the King's Closet. It was a rare privilege. You can imagine, you know, my... Background, that's not registering with me. And so I finally asked him, I said, you mean to tell me that when this palace was built, a closet was like a meeting room? He said, yes, that was exactly the, the meaning of the word. And had I been a cartoon character, you know, boom, suddenly starting, it starts making sense. Interesting factoid, the same king who built Holyrood House Palace was the same King James who authorized the, guess what, 1611 King James Version. So that would have been the perfect word in his context. I would I just say to you, if I were the devil, I would do everything in my power to keep Christians from praying together. Because the devil knows the history, biblical history, he knows church history, he knows the advancements against his kingdom of darkness always occurred out of movements of extraordinary united prayer. And so I would just sell them this bill of goods. Just do this on your own. Don't get too serious about going to those prayer meetings, you know. Don't spend that much time praying with people. Just just make it you know, your own personal life. And again, I'm not saying we shouldn't do that. All I'm saying, we have swung the pendulum so far over in the individualistic understanding of prayer that we are losing one of the primary means by which God has ordained to advance the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit and the gospel in our church. So as a leader, my point is simply this. If you don't have a conviction about this, it ain't happening in your church. And uh, we all need to realize not only for our own spiritual benefit personally, but for the sake of the health of the church, we've got to, to make this a primary priority, all right? Three more points, and these will be quick, and then we'll do a little Q&A here. Prayer culture is sustained by the right motive. And I think we all would confess that there have been stops and starts, right? Not only in our prayer life, but in our prayer leadership. Uh, one of my mentors, a guy named Peter Lord, says it this way. He said, most Christians pray out of crisis or a grocery list, period. In other words, our level of perceived crisis or the length of our grocery list determines our, our engagement with prayer, right? And I don't know about you, but I learned a long time ago, that is a roller coaster. Personal story, for 20 years, um, I got hoodwinked, I guess you would say it, into praying with the men of our church on Monday mornings at 6 o'clock. Now you know I'm not very smart. Because, I mean, they're all showing up. They're jacked up by their weeks getting ready to start. I'm in a body bag. You know, I'd preach three services, had meetings. And so you can imagine after a number of months, I, I woke up at 5 o'clock, not very excited about this thing that I, you know, swore to my own hurt, and it won't change, I'm going to show up. So I, you know, I had a conversation with the Lord. I don't hear voices or see handwriting on the wall. But, but I said, you know, Lord, why am I doing this? And uh, the impression that came to my heart was very clear. The Lord said, well, you know, right now your motives are rooted in things that change, like 
your energy level, the weather, how many guys show up, how well the prayer meeting goes, you know, the list goes on and on and on. And he basically prompted me to say, until your motive is rooted in something that never changes, you're going to struggle. So I asked myself, well, what is that? And what came to me is very simply, see it in your notes, that the only enduring motive for prayer is that God is worthy to be sought. Once that got rooted in my heart and mind, uh, it became a consistent conviction of my life that I got to pray. I may or may not feel like it. You know, over the years, uh, and we won't have time to get in this today, but I developed what I called accidentally. I didn't figure it out. It just happened. But I called relentless rhythms of prayer where I was personally committed, you know, to leading prayer times for our staff, church-wide prayer times, praying with the men, praying on Sunday mornings early, etc. But those rhythms uh, continued to fuel my appetite. But to be honest with you, most of those times, and you guys will be honest with this yourself, you know, your own personal prayer life in the morning or whenever you pray or going to lead a prayer meeting, I didn't feel like doing that 80% of the time. Now, I may be more carnal than the rest of you. I don't know. Maybe that's why God's had to pound prayer into my life. I didn't feel like doing that. I didn't feel like going. I don't feel like praying. But what I have to tell myself is what? God is worthy to be sought. And that, again, is a worship-based approach to prayer. And I often tell people, that's the only kind of prayer that's eternal. When you get to heaven, you won't be praying for missionaries or church planting or, you know, Aunt Matilda's heart, re- heart valve replacement. Those are good things. But you will be saying, what? Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. And so that became a game changer. And there's a lot of other things that may motivate us, you know, guilt, approval. At one point, uh, church growth, I'll be honest with you, that's what compelled me to pray when I was part of that church plant. Man, we were praying every morning. And then good old Peter Lord, he nailed me one day. We were sitting in a group of uh, pastors, and he said, if God promised you two things, number one, you'll go to heaven when you die, and we all like that. Uh, And number two, he'll never use you in the ministry again. Will you still pray? Now that may not affect you, but that was like a knife to my heart because it revealed to me I was praying so God would use me for me. And I've come to realize prayer is not your next church growth tactic. God is not going to reduce something as holy as prayer to some ego-driven need to prove our significance, right? So it can't even be church growth, although I think a praying church will be a healthy church and a healthy church will grow, Right? So then I got all into revival. I mean, I, I had a disease called Ravenhillitis. Anybody ever had that virus, Ravenhillitis? I mean, I was reading all these books on revival, leading conferences on revival, and then one guy burst my bubble one day at the conference I was sponsoring, and he got up and he said, there's a difference between seeking revival from God and seeking God for revival. Because revival is the outcome, right? We all like the outcome. And I realized, you know, as passionate as I am about revival, that cannot even be my motive. Because if it doesn't come in the next five years, I'm going to lose my motivation. And so it just became so real to me that the only enduring motive for me to pray, to lead my people in prayer, is that God is worthy to be sought. And I would suggest to you, if you're going to lead a culture of prayer, this is, this is going to have to be consistent in your motivational dynamic. And I think that's so key. Two final things, real quickly. Prayer culture is key to supernatural mission accomplishment, and I think we know that. Uh, let's be honest. You you can build you can build some pretty significant ecclesiastical stuff just based on formulas. In fact, I had a conversation with a guy in Canada one time. He called me. I was going to speak at a conference, and he said, "Could we go to lunch while you're here?" And I said, "Sure." 
So we went to lunch, and his staff was there, and he began to tell me a story. He'd been there 15 years. Church had grown from basically nothing to 2,000. And he was describing their programs, their activities, their outreach, you know, their facilities. And uh, about three minutes into that, he stopped dead in his tracks and started weeping at the table in this restaurant. And I said, John, what's wrong? He said, well, that's why I want to meet with you. I said, what do you mean? He said, I don't know if anything I've done had anything to do with the Holy Spirit. I said, explain that to me. He said, I worked the formulas. He said, I knew the formula for, you know, facility design. I knew the formula for relocation. I knew the formula for children's programming. I knew the formula for preaching, formula for music, formula for tech, formula. And he said, but I've been a prayerless pastor. And he said, well, the reason I'm crying, if I had to stand before God today, I don't know what would be wood, hay, and stubble versus gold, silver, and precious stone. I thought, man, that's raw. But I do know this, when we pray, that we, we engage with God at a supernatural level that accomplishes things that only God can do, right? And I think that's what we all want. I'm mean, getting the scoreboard, brothers, is in heaven, right? Scoreboard's in heaven. Uh, you know, Symbola, again, he's influenced me significantly, but, you know, he makes the point out of 1 Corinthians that, that some are going to get by by the skin of their teeth, you know, as by fire, and he said, I just don't want to show up in heaven. And the Lord said to me, what were you doing down there, by the way? You weren't doing what I told you to do. Now, you're doing what everybody else was doing, imitating yourself into oblivion, you know, but you weren't doing what I was telling you to do. And it's not what we do, it's why we do it and for whom, right? And I think that's where prayer becomes so vital in terms of the supernatural accomplishment of our mission. Lastly, uh, very practical. Prayer culture is more a crockpot than a microwave. <laughs> Say, man, I took time to come hear that. But very honestly, it's more a crockpot than a microwave. I quote A.W. Tozer used to say about prayer meetings, don't expect a big crowd when God is the only attraction. And it does, it takes time. It really takes time. Uh, one of my friends, a guy named Woody Torrance, got his uh, doctorate from Dallas, uh, and he wrote his, his dissertation on cultural change, changing the culture of your church. And he makes a statement. He said, I could have saved thousands of dollars and hundreds of hours and never taken that deem in because the, the bottom line of how you change the culture is relentless pressure over time. <laughs> he said, I didn't need a degree to figure that out. Uh, but the point is, it is just consistency of believing, of seeking, of praying, of leading, of equipping, of staying motivated, focused, with strong conviction about the role of prayer that truly does make a difference. And I'll Tell one last story, then we'll see if we have any questions here. I know it's been like drinking water out of a fire hose, but uh, so back to Monday mornings. You know, I don't know, I made five years into this, you know, and I woke up grousing again at 5 a.m. I said, all right, Lord, so how long do I have to do this prayer thing? I mean, can I get reassigned as a cruise ship chaplain or something? You know, I mean, that's grueling. And again, I don't hear voices, but what came to my heart was really a profound question. Um, it, was, it was like the Lord was saying to me, well, Daniel, um, it's a good question. Let me ask you a few now. How, how long are you going to uh, get up, take a shower, brush your teeth, polish your head? I don't need to comb my hair. Polish your head, put on deodorant, get dressed, eat breakfast. How long are you going to do that? So, well, it's till the day I die. And the conviction that hit me was the Lord saying, well, so you settled that, didn't you? You don't get up every morning and say, Lord, how long do I have to take a shower? 
Oh, Lord, how many days, you know, do I have to brush my teeth? Oh, Lord, I'm so frustrated. I had to put on deodorant today. All right. How many are bitter because you had to put on deodorant? Anybody? No. How many are bitter because the guy next to you apparently forgot? Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you just settled that stuff, right? And it's like the Lord said, so when are you going to settle this? And you do all those other things till the day you die and you, you don't question it? And you're actually asking me how long you have the privilege of seeking me and leading my people to seek me? And so, uh, you know, what I resolved that day, and I just encourage all of you to do the same, which you probably already have, is just um, develop a vision of dying on your knees. That's who we are. Prayer is not the theme of the month. It's not the emphasis of the year. It's not the annual project. It's who we are. And we'll touch on this at lunch, but um, boy, the Acts 6-4 paradigm of those early church leaders who were confronted with a major ministry malfunction of a, a priority that was top drawer for God, which had to do with feeding widows. And they said, no, we're not going to fix it. I mean, that's, that's radical. You don't see that in our day and age. We get paid to fix programs. They said, no, we're not going to do it. Why? Well, first of all, we got to give ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. And, and, and then beyond that, we know the Holy Spirit's sufficient to raise up other people to do this. And um, as that just began to grip my heart, I realized this, this, is, this is my calling. This isn't a program or a sidebar. Uh, this is what I have to do. And, and I'll mention this at lunch, so you can go like that. You've heard it twice. But uh, one of my buddies, Mark Vrogup, who is very involved with our fellowship, he pastors a church in Indianapolis, talks about the fact that people are always bugging you about championing their causes, right? And even if you're a church plant, you got this going. You got to be the champion of the women's ministry and the children's, you know, egg roll and or egg toss or egg hunt, you know, and you egg roll, I guess it must be ready for lunch. Or you got to be the champion of the, uh, you know, the sports thing or the champion of this, champion of the other. And, you know, he just says, you know, I can't champion all that, but I tell you what I will champion. I'm going to champion prayer. And he says, the reason is, all those things are good, and they're good body parts. You know, the, the, the children's musical might be a pinky, you know, and, and the, the men's program might be a right arm, and uh, evangelist explosion might be the right leg or whatever it is, you know, the various programs. But he says, I want to tell you right now, prayer is a vital organ. And if we lose that, we're dead. He said, so I'm going to champion the vital organs, and I'm going to support and celebrate all the other body parts but, you know, if we lose the right leg, we can still function. If we lose the left ear, we, you know, we'll still be okay. But if we lose a heart or a lung, we're dead. And uh, I would just say to you that what we're talking about here has to be our lifelong passion because it is a vital organ of everything we do. So, all right, questions, comments, suggestions, snide remarks, corrections, Greek words, Hebrew meanings, anything you want to toss out. I mean, you're a smart group here, but... Um, I'm not arrived, but I would tell you, God has pounded the stuff into me in the school of hard knocks, you know, multiple situations where God has just retaught me again, the transformational nature of what happens in a church that prays. Yeah. Right. Right. 
Yeah. Yeah, great question. Yeah, yeah, and it's a both end, obviously. It's not an either or. But yeah, so the question is how do you transition? I would just say, first of all, just begin to ask God to help you practice it in your life, you know, which you probably are anyway. Yeah. 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 Well, again, just the, the balance of the, the model prayer, I think, has to be the paradigm we utilize. I'll break that down in a little more detail at lunch. But um, of just trying to ask God, Lord, if you said pray this way, then you want me to discover that balance, right? And so it's not only seeking God's face, although there will be times when your worship and your pursuit of Him is just so delightful. You know, you don't get to those other needs and you realize it's all good because if He's God, He's got it covered, right? But um, so, you know, I call it biblical balance prayer. At lunch, we'll talk about it in four movements rather than just the two parts. But I think it's just to make sure that's clear in your own heart and just begin to ask the Holy Spirit to help you balance that. And then, of course, as you know, begin to, to, to pass that on to your core leaders, begin to practice that together and see it go viral in the church, you know. So um, I, I'm really, you know, again, I, I tend to be creative types over the years like you guys. You know, I've created all these prayer models. We got, of course, the Axe model, Fax model, Slacks model, you know, and they all start with the same letter for an hour or whatever. But I've just become increasingly convinced that Jesus said, pray this way, then I've really got to take that seriously. And again, not quoting the words, because as you know, the words are different both in Luke 11 and Matthew 6, but the pattern is the same. So I think just going after that pattern, asking the Holy Spirit to just help you find that balance, I think is really key. And then teaching it to your people. You will get pushback, though, you know, as it gets into the church because people are so stuck in their traditions, right? And I'll tell you one story real quick. I had a pastor friend tell me this. Uh, he said he went golfing not long ago with a pro in his church. Uh, and so he asked the pro to help him. He'd never golfed with a pro. So after about two holes, the pro showed him how to change his grip. So on hole three with his new grip, he swings and the ball slices off into the woods on the right. And hole three, he swings with his new grip and it hooks off into the water. Hole you know, five, he swings the new grip and it dribbles down the fairway. He said, by hole six, I went back to my old grip and played a typically miserable round. And he said, the guy could tell I was frustrated, so he didn't say anything else. But at the end, when we were done, he came up, put his arm around me. And he said, let me tell you something. Well, you've done something wrong for so long and you tried to do it right. He said, it will be so uncomfortable, but if you don't persevere, you're never going to improve your game. And he said, that became an aha moment for me about what I'm trying to help my people do. Because moving them away from just talking about their needs and then doing a Hail Mary at the end versus showing that, that first we're just going to seek God's face and then we're going to trust His hand is a major paradigm shift. It involves a level of intimacy that a lot of casual Christians aren't comfortable with. But it's it's a life changer, you know, and so you just got to persevere. You really do. Any other questions, comments? Anybody at all? I know I'm probably a Cessna talking to 747s here. Uh, you guys probably could teach me a whole lot more than, than I know. Yes, ma'am. Mm-hmm.
right? Yeah, so when I teach on this, um, and I, I think our books are going to come, but one of my uh, books, Old Paths, New Power, has a whole section on facilitating prayer. Uh, but, you know, I, I make the statement that how you start your prayer time is going to determine where it goes. And, of course, one of the things I, I definitely go after is, does anybody have any prayer requests? And the reason I think that's a misstep is, number one, it starts the whole prayer time manward rather than Godward, which I think is a direct contradiction to what Jesus said to do. Uh, number two, it's hard to be an equal opportunity provider because, you know, some people, they've got 15 things and, you know, pretty soon everybody else gives up. You know, I'm not even going to share mine. And, and it's not even a good use of time because you talk about it. And then if you even have time, you come back and pray about it, right? So uh, second thing I always say is, you know, I did this for years because I learned somewhere I heard this. Let's just pray as we feel led. You ever done that to start a prayer meeting? Now, what I think I meant by that, I'm not even sure what I meant, honestly. But what I think I meant by that was let's pray as we feel led by the Holy Spirit. But let's be honest, that gets lost in translation. What people hear is let's just pray what comes to our mind which becomes an eclectic mess of disconnected who knows what, right? Because whatever's on people's mind, you know, only, only God knows. Uh, third thing I used to do is let's just pray around the circle. You've done that before, I'm sure. Problem with that is if you've got shy people, well, the problem with that is people got to pray because it's their turn, not necessarily because the Holy Spirit's prompting them to pray something, right? Uh, and then if you run to, into an introvert, there's this awkward silence and they finally say pass or whatever, and it really stinks if you're the last one in the circle because by then everybody stole all your material uh, or you just have to make something up to sound as profound as everybody else did, right? So, uh, so when you mention conversational prayer, you know, that's the more, I think, Evelyn Christians and others. It's, it's a very spontaneous, interactive, and I'm a big fan of that. But again, I think it comes out of the Word of God. You know, I, and you'll hear me talk about this. I, I just, every prayer meeting I lead starts with a very consistent statement, and that is, let's open our Bibles. You see, whoever starts a conversation tends to guide the conversation. So the question is, who do you want to guide your conversation, you or God? Well, I, I'm, you know, maybe this is part of my semi-reformed theology, but I'm just convinced that God always has a better idea when it comes to prayer than I do, and the best way to talk to God is from His own Word. And so that's why, again, every prayer meeting I lead, it, it, it comes out of us looking at the Word of God, uh, assessing what does this tell us about God and His character. Now, before we seek His hand, let's just seek His face. Don't ask Him for anything for the next five or ten minutes. Just give Him what He's worthy of. And then, and here's the other thing I've learned. Uh, the Holy Spirit has a prayer list that's way more interesting than mine. Because He already knows about my knee replacement, my trip to Omaha or whatever. Uh, my goal is to seek His face and then trust His hand for the things that are on His heart for me. And we'll mention this in the ne next hour. I think it comes down to definition. I think the average believer defines prayer as talking to God. Right? The problem with that is that makes God one big ear and us one big mouth. Now, that's a part of prayer, 
But I think there's more to it than that. And they'll, or they'll say, well, prayer is telling God about my needs. Again, that's fine. That's a part of prayer. But again, that mainly makes prayer man-centered rather than God-centered. And I would say, and I'll say this next hour, that the definition of prayer that, that really, I think, has resonated with my heart is that prayer is intimacy with God that leads to the fulfillment of His purposes. And I think if you look at New Testament praying, you look at the prayer life of Jesus, the prayer life of Paul, that's what they did. It was about intimacy with God that led to the fulfillment of His purposes. In one of my books, Transforming Prayer, I, I looked at all the prayers of Jesus and all the prayers of Paul and all the prayer requests of Paul, the content of them, and I compared them to what we normally pray about. And the disconnect is incredible. Uh, one mentor of mine, you say this way, we spend more energy praying sick Christians out of heaven than we do praying lost people out of hell. <laughs> now, again, I'm not, making, I'm not trying to let you think that God is an incompassionate, distant God. He doesn't care about my ulcers. He does. But He's got it all covered. He, he knows my body better than the doctor does. He knows my future. He knows my past. He knows my... And, but, and, and the way for me to deal with that is not just to inform Him about it as if He didn't know, but it's to encounter Him and receive from Him the fullness of grace and providence and goodness and power that He has available to me if I can just learn to seek His face before I seek His hand. that makes any sense. I often say this way, if all we ever do is seek God's hand, we might miss His face. But if we seek his face, he's going to be glad to open his hand. I mean, and again, that's the pattern of prayer that he taught us. So, so it's a hard change, you know, and I would suggest to you in any prayer group or leadership team you're trying to make the change, just study this together somehow. Either, you know, uh, the big question is, did Jesus mean what he said or not when he said pray this way? If he did mean what he said, then we have got to surrender our traditions, our preferences, etc., like we would in any other area of obedience, right? And we have got to align ourselves with what He said for us to do because, frankly, He had our best interests at heart when He told us how to pray, right? So, sorry I got going on that. But uh, any other questions or comments? Anybody else? It's a great question. That's a very real issue. You know, how do we make a change in the, the prayer gatherings we're already engaged in? You know, I, I'm not trying to sell books, but, but I would tell you that in a group like that, if they make it here, they went to some church somewhere else here in town. But uh, the book Transforming Prayer uh, would be a great study to go through together because it, it, it's kind of humorous, but it unpacks what we've always done and really helps shift us to, to aligning our, our praying biblically with, with what Jesus really had in mind. So, any other comments, questions? Anybody? Wow, you guys have been great sitting here listening to all this droning. But Yes, sir? Dying on your knees, yeah. Dying, yeah. In other words, it's not a short-term fix, it's a lifelong calling, yeah. Now, I often say humorously, you know, I've been in prayer meetings where I thought the time had come. I thought I was about to die, right? I mean, I've prayed for the rapture halfway through some prayer meetings, you know. Uh, we've fallen and we can't get up, whatever the case is. And, you know, I didn't get into this, but, you know, I've been in prayer meetings where people have slept, you know, snored, snorted. One prayer meeting, I watched a guy drool on his lapel. You know, he was out like a light. One time a guy fell out of his chair and he wasn't slain in the spirit. And the bad news, I was leading those prayer meetings, right? So early on, I figured out God is not the author of boredom, especially when we're conversing with Him. 
And this is what we're doing. We're doing something wrong because this is not what Jesus had in mind when he had the thought of us praying. So uh, anyway, uh, yeah, so dream of dying on your knees. It, it is a lifelong calling, and it's a great privilege, isn't it? Well, thank you. Let me. Yeah, go ahead. One more, Andy. Not a question, but just I need this. I sure. Need this. So oh, I hope it's helpful. I'm no expert, and I'll mention at lunch, you know, I'm not a natural prayer guy by any means. I've met some of those people, you know, they drip Shekinah juice and glow in the dark, and, you know, they're, they're always in intimate communion. I'm, I'm a fiercely independent personality, and so it's all grace. You know how God does that. He'll take our weaknesses, and He'll just whack us down until we've got nothing left, and then rebuild us so we remember who did it, right? And it's all grace. So, Lord, give us that grace, the grace of prayer, the grace of hunger and desire for you, Lord. Uh, Lord, let us become increasingly dissatisfied with, with just the stuff that, that we get fed. Uh, again, sometimes very good, but sometimes the enemy of the best. And uh, help us, Lord, to truly go back to uh, the sufficient New Testament model of how you transform the world through a small band of church planters who had no idea what they were doing, but they knew they needed to pray. And you were sufficient, Lord, to turn the world upside down. And so God, help us in the midst of all the tools that we have, not to allow ourselves to depend on those tools. Certainly, Lord, we want to use them as you would lead us, but help us to have a heart deeply embedded in the sufficiency of the Holy Spirit as praying leaders who, uh, by your grace, we trust, by our own example and passion, can lead a staff and a, and a leadership team and a board and an entire congregation to be a house of prayer for all nations, Lord. And we pray this for your glory. Amen. Amen. Thank you, everybody. I think we have lunch at 1130, so we got a little bit of a break here and look forward to hanging with you. If you want to chat about anything, I'll just hang out here. So, Hello, everybody. Hey, I'm, I, uh, I am here to interrupt all your fun conversations and tell you to come in here and sit down. They told me to say it just like that, by the way. Come on in, everybody. Find a chair. Find a seat. You're in for a treat. Okay. Come on in. I'm going to make a couple of announcements if, uh, if that's all right. All right, here we go. Listen, my name is Trey Little, and I am one of the pastors on staff here at Grace. And, uh, and I want to just say on behalf of all of our team, I want to say welcome to Grace. We are honored to be part of what is going to happen here today. And so thank you for that opportunity. Um, we've got a little tagline that we use around here. Uh, we say, living to make Jesus visible. So I hope that while you're on this campus, that you, uh, that he is being made visible um, through our staff and through what we're about. We just want you to feel welcome. Um, we want you to have a good, positive grace experience. So thanks for coming out today. Um, I want to give you a couple of things just to be mindful of. In a minute, you're going to be released to go for food, and it will be uh, a treat. We've got a wonderful staff that uh, does a great job with our food, so you'll be released to have some lunch. Uh, if you are in need of a restroom, it's just right down this hallway to the very end. If there is something that you need that you are not finding that we might be able to help you with, then just find one of us 
uh, with the name tag on. We'll do everything we can to make uh, make your time here on the campus um, memorable. So you just let us know what we can do to help you. But I'm excited about what the Lord's up to in this uh, church planning network. I'm excited about what he's up to in terms of bringing a bunch of knuckleheads like us together to um, make his son Jesus visible and the kingdom vision in, in mind. So it's just going to be it's just going to be fun to talk about it all. So thanks for coming out. Thanks for being at Grace. Welcome. And I'm going to give thanks for the time and the food. And then I don't know who's going to talk next. Jeremiah, are you who's whatever. Somebody else is going to give you all instruction. I'm just I can't do anything more than this. Everything else is more than my pay grade. So let's pray. Lord, we do love you so much. We're thankful, Lord, for the truth that your mercies are new every morning. We're thankful, Lord God, that this indeed is a day that you have made and we shall rejoice and be glad. And I thank you, Lord, for all those that have come out. Just pray that you would bless our time together around these tables. I just pray, Lord, you'd bless the food we're about to eat to nourish our bodies, bless the sweet hands that prepared it, and just continue, Lord, to fill us up with your joy so that we might be lights in this world. To you be the glory in Christ's name. Amen. Enjoy. Oh, food is served. Amen. Amen. Good to have you today. Good to have you today. Somebody say, God is good all the time. When I say God is good, you say all the time. God is good? All All right, all right. Well, we're going to go ahead and get uh, the afternoon moving here. So we're so glad to have you. want to welcome you to ACPN, where we are. The goal is to saturate this city with churches to reach every man, woman, and child. And so we've got a few speakers and a few people who you want to hear from today. And a couple of things we want to say before that, if you have not been or if you're not aware of the 50 days of prayer that HCPN is doing, you really need to get in on that. You can follow it through the website. um, And every day there is a prayer written by someone, a devotional prayer written by someone in the HCPN circle. And today's was very good by Heather Rule. She did a wonderful job. And it's a great way to get your day started and to stay plugged in. The goal is for us to be unified in prayer for this city over the next 50 days. So if you have not done that, please uh, tap into that and uh, you will be blessed because of it. And for some of you who really want to walk on the wild side, you can do this on your table, there are some tattoos. You don't have to pay for it. The ink is free. All you have to do is put the tattoos on your hand, and while you're praying, you know, you'll be standing in unity with everyone here. So, uh, you know, I don't allow my kids to get tattoos, but we can do this one. We can do this one. Amen, amen. Uh, I want to take a moment. We're going to show a video um, by our uh, host sponsor today. And then uh, we'll hear from him, uh, Mike Mantel, the president and CEO of Living Water International. Shortly after this video, he'll come up and uh, share more about uh, their ministry. The Lord then called me here to Bolima, where the majority of people are Muslims. The first thing I did was laying the foundation of the church. Then I built the school. Ministry was not easy. At times, there was no one here but my family. I wanted to give up. But I remember Joshua 24, verse 15. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. I have hope, but there are still challenges. The water in my community was contaminated. Even my daughter, Cardi, got sick with cholera due to the unsafe water. 
I knew I had to do something. I have heard about living water, so I reached out to them and asked for help. When they brought the big grid in our community, everyone was overjoyed. They were singing and dancing, and I could not help but feel proud. Through this well, the Lord opened a door that I could not open on my own. The well not only provided clean water, but lifted the burden on my ministry. When people come for safe water, I'm able to share the gospel. Muslim families who were so hard-hearted to Jesus are now attending my church. Today, I no longer see my work as a burdensome, but as a blessing. Instead of division among my people, I see the peace and love of Christ taking hold in this community. I am so thankful that I did not give up, that the Lord did not let me give up. to living water, you open doors to the gospel. I love being in my home church with a room full of people that are passionate about planting and nurturing local churches. Uh, living water serves the church as she fulfills her mission. Um, is, is my pastor still here, Trey Little? Are you still here? Because when he invited me to co-sponsor this lunch, I wanted to tell him that I was not going to redesignate my existing tithe, but I was actually going to give new money for lunch. Because we love the church, and as you saw in that video, water is a powerful tool in the hands of a pastor over there. Water is also a powerful tool in the hands of a pastor here in Houston because we know that people want to join a community of faith that's active, that's engaged in issues that change the world. And there is usually no better way to do so than through water linked with the gospel working through a local church. And so living water serves the church, and we are here to serve the church in Houston, as well as the church in India, and in uh, Latin America, in Africa, and in Haiti. So we just invite you to go to our website and to look for some tools to help you build awareness, involvement, and investment in the local church. It's www.water.cc slash church. Just go on that website. But I'd also like to invite you to go on a trip. Trey took a team from Grace a couple of weeks ago to go to Haiti. It's a one-week experience. You get your hands on the rig. You drill a water well. You teach sanitation and hygiene. And you share the gospel. 
but it's a immersion experience in discipleship. You take your leadership team, you'll be transformed and bring that passion back to your church. And if you have any questions, look up that man and ask him how it went for him. Or grab me, Mike Mantell, or my colleague, uh, John Nadolsky here, and we would love to talk to you about a trip or how Living Water can serve the church planning activities here in Houston. Thank you very much. Thanks. Hey there, I'm Jeremiah Morris. I'm the pastor of Seven Mile Road, Houston, and we're starting at these monthly gatherings to have kind of some updates from the front lines. And so uh, that's my, my job today, which I'm excited to tell you that we, we launched officially in September. And uh, just here to testify to the fact that the gospel really is the power of God to save that God really is answering prayers, that he really is on the move. And so we planted a church that's out of, uh, we're using the facility, the, the Council on Recovery. It's an addiction recovery facility inside the 610 loop. And uh, over these last eight months, we've seen God move in some really beautiful ways. I think one of the things that sticks out to me is our upcoming uh, string of baptisms we'll be doing. We're getting, getting to baptize eight individuals in the next few weeks. And uh, they range from age 22 to 60 One's a professional athlete. One uh, is a bag checker at Kroger that also was a Satanist six weeks ago. Um, and we have young professionals that went to Stanford. And, we, and, and the great joy of all of that, I say all that to say this, you can't go anywhere else in the city than somewhere where Jesus is central to see a group of people like that loving one another, calling each other family, um, and really caring for and tending to one another's souls. And so uh, we're really grateful for the impact that Houston Church Planning Network has had on Seven Mile Road, on me as an individual, and are praising God for the work that he's doing as he continues to hear and answer our prayers. So uh, if this is your first time here, you found a really great community. Stick around, let this place continue to encourage and shape and, and bless you on whatever journey you're on. So thanks for being here. I'll pass it back to David. Amen, amen. Great work there, great work. Uh, my name is David Hill, and I am pastoring Restoration Community Church, which is in the uh, inner area of Third Ward, Third Ward of Houston, Texas. Um, we are an urban church, church plant, and when I say that, I don't mean Midtown; I mean urban, as in the block. And so, uh, you know, it really, it really started for us. It started for me um, when I was a college student at TSU, mentoring uh, young teenagers uh, in that area. Then I left to go on some, do some mission work in, in, the, uh, in the United States. And I came back and saw many of their lives devastated by the generational curses and, and, and challenges that many of them face. And it was then we realized that my life was going to be spent working in the urban context, in particularly minority communities, African-American, Hispanic, and helping them through the gospel understand um, the restorative power that it has. Uh, and one of the things that we are most excited about uh, is as we and what we're most passionate about is the restoration of the family. Uh, Seventy-two percent of African American children are born into one-parent households. Forty percent of children in America are born into one-parent households. And we really believe if the family is not restored, then how how can we rebuild our community? Um, and that is our mission: is to rebuild individuals, families, and community. So one of the things that we're excited about is every year we have done a marriage in our in our community. 
where we've been able to help a family through the gospel, understand a man, understand what his place is, his wife, his children, and help them to walk that out. And so we want to do that one family at a time, one block at a time, until we see God's work done in this urban context uh, and something that we can hold up to the to the nation, to the city, and say, this is what happens when God is, is, is first. Amen? Amen. So thank you for having us today. Thank you so much. Well, I want to move on, uh, and I want to take an opportunity to introduce our next uh, speaker who will share a few things. And I'm going to take this opportunity, I don't know if I'll ever have it again, to say how much I appreciate his heart, his work, um, and what he has poured into my life as a resident uh, of HCPN, uh, finishing residency last year. Had the opportunity to sit in some trainings with him. Had the opportunity to sit in his home in a time of fellowship. And I can't tell you. Uh, how much it has meant to me and how much confidence it has breathed in my life. And uh, I just am so grateful. Um, so I'm going to ask that if you would show a little love and put your hands together for Pastor Bruce Wesley. Uh, and we'll receive him at this time. Good to see you, everybody. And uh, welcome. I'm glad you're here. Uh, you're right, Trey. Food was outstanding. Can we thank these folks for uh, for great food? And it is good to look around the room and see all you church planters, too. Uh, Russell, I think David was hating on you, man, talking about Midtown like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, there are... Uh, I'm going to give this is in the opinion realm, okay? I think there are um, really good nonprofits and nonprofits that aren't so helpful. And the ones that are not so helpful are the ones that are trying to do the work of the church. But the ones that are really helpful are the ones that are helping the church do the work of the church. When you see the church thrive working with some nonprofits, that's the kind of nonprofit that we want to partner with and work with. Living Water International is one of those. So, so grateful for your um, your work, and uh, thank you for helping today and uh, helping make this possible today. How many of you, uh, you're new to, to HCPN? Just curious how many new people. I don't want to know who I'm talking to here. All right. Well, many of my comments are going to be focused to you, and I'll be brief, but I want you to know what we're about and why we exist. Uh, HCPN really is a network of networks. Uh, in this room, and um, sometimes, you know, there are more or less people in the room, but we're a network of networks. And with all of the different networks, we realize that people identify with denominations or some doctrinal distinctives and so on, but there needs to be a place in the city where we can come together and a church planter can find a home, find a tribe, someone to connect with and be supported by both emotionally, financially, spiritually. And so the Houston Church Planting Network really started with that in mind. So we're a network of networks and we exist to strengthen church planters. That's what we're about. We want to strengthen church planters to multiply churches that reach every man, woman, and child in the greater Houston area. And that's why we try to spread the ball around all over the city. It's why we meet in different places, uh, different kinds of denominations and everything. We want to we meet two places, the gospel of Jesus and the greater Houston area. 
that those two places have our heart. In this city that will be 9 million people by 2035, this most diverse city, this is not new news to you, 200 language groups, more than that, more than 300 people groups in this city, by 2035 will be, there will be an equal number of Anglos, Hispanics, and African Americans in this city. And so it's a beautiful picture when the church comes together and it's all of us together that Jesus is making us all one with a heart for the city. And so what HCPN is about is about planting churches in this diverse city, not big churches trying to influence the city, but understanding that it's going to take this infestation of churches, a saturation of churches all across the city, pushing into every dark corner of the city, establishing new churches. Where are they going to come from? Where are those church planters going to come from? They're going to come from communities of faith just like yours and mine, where people are devoted to raising up and sending out church planters. So what we're about then is gathering like this on a monthly basis. Hopefully this will, in this gathering, we will strengthen some church planters. Some of you needed to look across the table from someone who's going to tell you, you're not crazy for doing what you're doing. Uh, you're doing the good work. You're doing the hard work. You're laying the kind of foundation that's going to make a difference in this city, even if it doesn't look like it uh, right now. So Keep doing what you're doing. So we want to strengthen church planters in this gathering. But we also want to foster collaboration. We realize that uh, many of you, you lead churches similar to the church that, that I pastor. And, <clears throat> excuse me, we have a lot of opportunity and a lot of resources, and that means a lot of responsibility before God to steward those resources in a way that we can help people plant churches all across this city. And so in collaborating together, uh, what we've realized is that one of the things that we can really do well is collaborate to train church planters. And so we've started some residencies, and you've heard from a couple of the people who have been in residencies at, uh, at HCPN. And this collaborate, we have two residencies. One is a, a finishing residency for those in the last 12 to 18 months before they plant a church. And this finishing residency is intended to uh, train to then also um, really encourage spiritually, kind of do spiritual development for those pastors who are going to plant churches and give relationships, um, just introduction to uh, leaders all across the city. That's what the finishing residency is intended to do. And this is a paid residency, the finishing residency is. But what we also realized is that there are a lot of people who aren't ready for a finishing residency, but they need to get some legs, some church planting legs that may prepare them to be a part of a finishing residency or to plant a church. They're two to three years out. And so this last year we started a functional residency. I'm curious how many functional residents are in the room as a risk. I should have looked around before I asked a, uh, a number of you. So there are about 40 people right now going through a functional residency that's really intended to help people about two to three years out in equipping to plant a church and then foundational residencies happen within local churches all across the city. And, of course, we want to encourage and facilitate those any way that we can. So with that in mind, I want you to know that what we're about as the Houston Church Planning Network is a kind of collaboration where we see the multiplication of churches so that there's a saturation of churches in the city of Houston together. That's what we're focused on.
If there's some way that uh, I can answer questions for you, if you're considering becoming more involved in the Houston Church Planning Network and part of our residencies or whatever, uh, I'll be happy to try to answer any questions for you. Chad Clarkson's in the room also. Chad, would you raise your hand? In case you don't know Chad, uh, Chad will be happy to answer questions for you too. All right. Now it's my privilege to introduce our speaker for the day. His name is Daniel Henderson. And uh, Daniel, for the last three decades, has been guiding individuals, uh, leaders, and churches to embrace these powerful um, spiritual experiences, this spiritual renewal. So he's served a thousand, he's been pastored to thousands of people, both in California and in Minnesota, and he lives right next door to heaven in Castle Rock, Colorado, my personal opinion. <laughs> and uh, today he's, he really travels across the country, speaking at conferences <clears throat> and churches, coaching pastors and business leaders in uh, really spiritual life, how to have a strategic and significant spiritual life. Uh, we have a kindred heart in that we're grandfathers. He has eight grandchildren, uh, and he's written about eight different books. He uh, obviously is a married man, and uh, some of you have already been blessed by hearing him speak. Uh, we are really blessed that you're here, Daniel. Thanks for pouring into us today, and it's all you. Welcome, Daniel Henderson, please. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you, Bruce. Uh, man, what a thrill to hear what God is doing here in Houston. I was telling Chad um, as he picked us up last night, I'm the only member of my family who has never gotten right with God and lived in Texas. I don't know what my problem is, but hearing you speak makes me want to come here. This is an exciting place to be. So uh, thrilled to see what the Lord is doing among all of you and love uh, the church planting focus. Fresh out of seminary, I was part of a church planting team, and then uh, the churches we pastored, I pastored all planted churches, and both uh, obviously domestically and globally, so uh, it is really a, a live stream of evangelism to see uh, church planting going on, and grateful for that. I do bring you greetings from Denver, Colorado, the Mile High City, in more ways than one. Um, I've never visited one of those dispensaries, but I see them all the time. Uh, some guys tell me their preaching's a little better now. I don't know. But anyway, <clears throat> it's, it's coming to Texas eventually. Keep fighting it if you can. But uh, it is what it is. A lot of lost people there, they just don't remember our conversations after witness to them is a problem. But uh, anyway, and I love the tattoos. I, I almost did this. I mean, I just think that's a great advertisement. Uh, if any of you bald guys put one on your bald spot, I'll give you a free book. How's that? Just uh, for your courage. But uh, pray for Houston. What a great day. Uh, the focus is really on, on prayer and revival in the local church today. And so how appropriate to be able to address that, uh, hopefully from God's Word and in a way that would encourage uh, each and every one of us. Uh, we have a few uh, uh, announcements, advertisements real quick I want to tell you about. I think I can make this work. Uh, am I too far away, you think? Um, Oh, there it goes. I just had to hold my hand up. Uh, our message today, well, we'll come back to that. But uh, I lead a network that was actually uh, birthed here in, I'm one of the leaders, I should say, birthed here in Houston. Uh, some of you may have been at a one-day event that Pastor Jim Simmel and I co-hosted. And uh, Jeff Wells, who's one among you, was one of the founding pastors of this fellowship. And it really is a fellowship. And it was about six, seven years ago that Jim Simbola 
had this conversation with me saying that he celebrated so many of the things that pastors are doing together, one of which is like this, an emphasis on church planting. Uh, for some, it's connection with their denomination. For others, it might be oriented around some megachurch model. Uh, but <clears throat> we begin to realize that we could not recognize a national fellowship that was very specific to helping pastors connect and encourage one another in the area of prayer. There were a lot of parachurch ministries doing that, but I learned uh, that best ones to encourage pastors are the pastors. And so we started a fellowship called the 6-4 Fellowship based on Acts chapter 6 and verse 4, uh, where as the early church leaders were confronted with a major ministry breakdown of a focus that was very close to God's heart, and that was the widow feeding program, they actually said, no, we're not going to fix it. Now, that does not fly in modern America because we're paid to fix programs and start programs. But they refused to do it because they were going to give themselves continually, as you know, to prayer and the ministry of the Word. And um, this is all oriented around just encouraging, helping one another. Membership's free. Uh, what that means is you sign up to get resources on a regular basis, and they are videos from other pastors. Some of them you would know, the very nationally known. Others would just be regular pastors in the trenches just to keep fueling our fire, our competency, our commitment, our conviction around prayer. So I would really encourage you to join. In fact, I think Robert has a way to monitor that. Uh, are you in here, Robert? Uh, I just saw him here. I, he just got raptured. But uh, yeah, so whoever is the first guy to sign up here today, you can have a free copy of all the books out there. You can sell them at your garage sale next week. But uh, that would just be a big thank you. And then I know he's going to randomly pick somebody uh, and just offer them a free opportunity to participate in some of our events. But we hope you'll consider that. Uh, I was just in conversation with Tim Hawks, who you would know, Bruce, <clears throat> about Christ together. And um, we both feel, and he said specifically, he feels like this and uh, the whole effort of uniting together for church planting and evangelism fits so well because all of that has to be rooted in our praying, right? In our unity in prayer. Uh, but our praying is only good prayer when it results in community impact. And so it's a real one-two punch. So we invite you to be a part of that. Uh, we do a number of things uh, as we have opportunity. We have a webcast coming up uh, on April 29th, which happens to be my birthday. I'll turn 59. I decide instead of being depressed, I'll just do ministry, right? Uh, but we also have some unique video um, segments from a pretty diverse group of guys. You don't usually see John MacArthur and some of these other guys on the same. You don't see John MacArthur too many other people, actually. But anyway, uh, with all these other people, Paul Tripp and others, and I used to work for John. He's a friend. But uh, it, it's a great opportunity to really help your church understand the nature of why the early church had such a spirit of revival. That might be of interest to you. Uh, we also do a lot of coaching. We have some short-term ones coming up. I'll tell you about them real quick. Uh, one is just for anyone and everyone around the idea of prayer. But a second one uh, is for worship leaders. We've concluded, and I've had the privilege of coaching over the last few years, about 150 pastors in uh, small groups uh, via the Internet. But we have concluded the second most influential person on staff who can help shape a culture of prayer is the worship leader. And so we have a group that's forming around worship leaders. Um, one of the guys who's part of Vertical Church Band will be doing one session. Uh, Brook Hills Church, where David Platt used to be, that worship pastor will be doing it. Helping worship leaders really integrate prayer into the fabric of not just their ministry, but particularly the Sunday services or weekend services. And then we have one for pastors who want to connect. What I love uh, is what I'm seeing around the country, pastors beginning to pray together. And in this case, uh, 
uh, we have several. There's a group of pastors in Titusville, Florida that pray together every Wednesday. They have 40 of them, and uh, it's amazing. They, when you walk in, they say, leave your logos and your egos at the door. Uh, you can bring your tattoos, of course, but leave the other stuff at the door. And uh, God's done an amazing thing. A guy named Will Davis, who's part of the Austin Prayer Network among pastors, will be doing one of those sessions. And then a guy named Bill Elliff out of Little Rock, where they have an extraordinary network of prayer. Uh, and he also leads a thing called One Cry. And so just some coaching to help uh, nurture that. So if you're interested, check that out. You can go to our, our main webpage, which is strategicrenewal.com. And then lastly, we have two conferences coming up this fall. Uh, they're not typical conferences. They're not just content. We actually spend 15 to 20 minutes in every main session praying through what we have just heard. Uh, lots of workshops, but uh, people you'd recognize, Jim Sumlin, many others. I know Vance Pittman, who's a big church planner out of... Uh, Las Vegas and several. So if you're interested in that, please check it out at our website. We would love to get you involved in some of those opportunities. Lastly, uh, we send out a, an e-devotional every Monday that is oriented around prayer, renewal, and leadership. And if you're interested in that, you can uh, just sign up on your phone or at the table. And there's a CD back there our staff sent. And this one is all called Praying the Psalms. It's actually just walking through a psalm and uh, an exercise of how do you pray through a psalm in what we call scripture-fed, spirit-led, worship-based prayer, which we'll refer to in just a moment. All right. So today we're going to talk about the extraordinary power of New Testament prayer. I know I've got to hold this at just the right place to get this to work. Uh, well, maybe not. Maybe we're just going to talk about the CD thing the rest of the morning. I don't know. That's not working now. Sorry there, Micah. It's on, and there it goes. No. Okay. I went the wrong way. I'm sorry, guys. There we go. This is going to be fun. Okay. It's just slow, maybe. Okay. Uh, so, oh, yeah, you might have to do that. Thank you, sir. Um, we're going to talk about the extraordinary power of New Testament prayer. And Chad and the team had kind of designated this to be a day of focusing on that. Uh, I just want to mention to you right up front, I like to say this, I'm not a natural prayer guy, all right? So uh, it's always kind of daunting to speak on prayer. I've met some of those guys. They seem to be very meditative, contemplative, uh, probably had their prayer robe on, swung their incense before they left their house, and they drip Shekinah juice and glow in the dark, and they're very intimidating. Uh, that's not me. I'm fiercely independent by nature. In fact, my friends say... I could be stranded on a desert island for a week and never realize I'm the only one there. Now, maybe you don't get that, uh, but I'd be having so much fun collecting coconuts, building huts, you know, going fishing, and suddenly realize, man, where's my wife? You know, uh, where, where'd everybody go? And so, uh, in, in all honesty, for me to speak here um, about prayer is simply a work of God's grace. He has a tendency, doesn't he, to take our weaknesses, to break us down, and then to rebuild us so that we never forget who did the work. And I'm simply the product of the school of hard knocks as it relates to prayer. Uh, but in the course of pastoring um, three churches over 25 years, uh, two of which were on the heels of a scandalous moral failure, the cleanup guy. Uh, they don't have a class on seminary for that, uh, but I do have the scars to prove it. And then one uh, in following a pastor who'd been there for 40 years, which is just a different flavor of pain. Uh, the Lord really taught me that prayer is not just therapeutic, but it's transformational. It literally can transform the culture and life of not only a church, but of the individuals involved in it. So I want to encourage you with some of that as we talk about that today. And before we do, let me pray and let's just commit these moments to the Lord. I know that speaking after lunch is the art of talking in other people's sleep. So we're going to ask him to keep us alert and awake and engaged. So Father, we ask now 
uh, that you would give to me and to all of us a heart of, uh, we trust, hunger and humility before you. Uh, there is not a prayer expert in this entire room. We are all learning and we're growing. But Lord, we do want to be in step with you. And we do want to see you do things that only you can do. That strangely enough has always been attached to extraordinary passion for you through prayer. And so, Lord, whatever barriers, discouragements, whatever strongholds stand in the way of your will for our lives and our praying, in our leadership in prayer, Lord, would you now address those in your own gentle yet clear way, allow us to leave here better equipped, motivated, and resolved, we trust, Lord, to be the men and women you have called us to be for the sake of the advancement of your kingdom. And we pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. So this morning, I want to talk to you this afternoon, really, about the modern day prayer option. I would suggest to you that prayer tends to be an option in ministry, even though intellectually, I think we give great assent to it. I often say that prayer is the most often talked about and least practiced discipline of the Christian faith. And, and not to meddle, but if you took a look at the average church website, uh, which is our primary means of communicating our ministry, uh, very typically there would be a noticeable absence of the priority of prayer in the work of the church. Uh, perhaps um, at least churches will have a form where people can submit a prayer request uh, and hopefully trust that someone would pray for that need. But seldom do you find any indication uh, that prayer is a vital element of both the leadership culture and the culture of the church. Uh, it might be an occasional activity that an interested few attend, uh, but usually not an implemented value. Uh, now, that doesn't mean that prayer doesn't happen in some form. Uh, every church prays, right? But we often say there's a difference between a church that prays and a praying church. Uh, and there's a difference, as we know, between a pastor that prays and a praying pastor. Uh, we all understand the need for prayer, the theology of prayer, uh, but the acid test, of course, is the degree to which we actually engage in it on a consistent basis, and it's germane to everything we do in our leadership. My friend Keeney Dickinson, a fellow Texan, says it this way, we tend to pray in the context of ministry. Jesus ministered in the context of prayer. And that's very challenging to me. Uh, it's, I haven't arrived at that, but I do believe that there is uh, a waiting for me, blessings untold, and power yet not experienced, if I could understand what that really means in my life. I mentioned in our workshop earlier, a pastor friend and I named Mark Vrogup. He pastors College Park Church in Indianapolis, also one of the, the founding pastors of the 6-4 Fellowship. And he talked about how so many times as pastors, we are lobbied to be the champion of virtually every program in the church. And you know what that means. Uh, and I don't even have to name the departments, but, but you, you think of all the motivated people in your church who are constantly pressing you to announce whatever it is that they're all about. And Mark uh, really came up with a clarifying statement. He, he realized that these are all good and they're all body parts. Uh, you know, the, the youth league might be the right hand and the women's ministry, the left arm and the children's programming, the right leg, etc. And he said, we would hate to lose any of those, but we could still function. Maybe not optimally, but we could still function. But he said, prayer is a vital organ. Prayer, you cannot lose. If, if you don't have a vital organ, you are dead on arrival. And so he's made it very clear, you know, I'll, I'll be glad to support, encourage, but there's one thing I'm going to champion, and that is going to be prayer. 
And of course, that becomes key to the reality of a church that is truly a praying church. In the New Testament, obviously, it's a little bit different. And let's see if this will work. Uh, there we go. All right. So, so far, so good. Uh, in the New Testament, we all know prayer was so vital to everything they did. The church was launched in prayer. They dealt with crisis in prayer. Uh, they moved forward in prayer. Missions was launched out of prayer, etc. Uh, and in certain places in the world, you still see that today. In, in recent days, I've had a couple of occasions to be in Cuba and then in China among the church planters. And you don't have to tell them to pray. In fact, I go there to learn to pray. I don't go there to talk about prayer. And I've asked myself the question, maybe you have, is it, why is it that they pray the way they do and we don't? And you may come up with a variety of answers for that. But even more importantly, why is it that the early church prayed the way they did and we don't? And I've come to this conclusion, you may or may not agree, but it's profound to me. And that is that in the early church, they actually believed that the Holy Spirit was the how-to. Now, I can't speak for you, but I would be honest with you. I tend to think that the Holy Spirit helps me with my how-to. And there is a world of difference. Uh, my problem is I have too many other how-tos, right? Why should I pray for 30 minutes when I can Google this in three seconds and have some smart guy's answer and be off on my way and hope that the Holy Spirit attaches his, his uh, you know, train to my engine and we can get something done, right? Uh, it, it's kind of like these smartphones we carry around. I've got all these apps on here, and I tend to view the Holy Spirit like an app rather than as the operating system. But when we understand that the Holy Spirit is still the how-to of ministry, we can't help but make prayer a major, if not the major emphasis of how we lead, how we think, how we live. And so today I want to encourage us to tap into that maybe in a fresh way from a New Testament perspective. Now, I want us just to kind of... Um, be honest now, now that I've uh, kind of uh, labeled everyone with guilt here, uh, let's be honest about the fact that we do struggle. And over the years, as I've had the occasion to speak on prayer, often someone will come up to me and say, Daniel, you know, I appreciate what you said about prayer, and, and I love my pastor. You know what the next word is, right? But, yeah, yeah. But, uh, you know, he's good at this, that, the other, but he doesn't lead our church in prayer. Why is that? And I thought, you know, that's a good question, because I are one. Uh, why is it we struggle? And um, don't try to write this down, but I'm just going to do this by, by way of quick summary. Uh, in one of the books, Old Paths, New Power, in the, in the back of the book, I talk about uh, the reasons we struggle in prayer, the reason we struggle to lead in prayer. And I'll just give them to you quickly. Maybe one will relate to you. First of all, many of us grew up in a prayerless local church environment. I often say the, the heart cannot taste what the eyes have not seen. Now, I don't know what your local church was like, but the local church I went to, the prayer meeting was not the highlight of my week by any means. And so when people talk about a praying church, I have never experienced that. That Brazilian proverb that the heart cannot taste what the eyes have not seen uh, seems so real to me. People in my church when I was early in the, in the pastorate said, Pastor, we need to pray. And I was thinking, I don't think I want to do that. And so many of us have never seen a praying church. Secondly, we are trained in a prayerless educational process. Uh, I came out of seven years of seminary. I had all kinds of classes on homiletics, hermeneutics, armardiology, soteriology, eschatology, pneumatology, oleologism, schisms of biblical learning. But when it came to prayer, it was a goose egg. I had no idea really how to have a vibrant prayer life, how to lead a church in prayer. The prayer meetings I led, I didn't even want to go to. And I certainly didn't know how to lead a church that had a culture of prayer. And so our education subtly says prayer is an option. Prayer is a sidebar. 
Uh, prayer is for those, you know, guys who like to drip Shekinah juice, but uh, let's get her done, right? I mean, the great American idea is, you know, the great Larry the Cable Guy, get her done. You know, don't just sit there, do something. But I look at the New Testament and it was very different. It was don't just do something, sit there. And I don't mean sitting around on your hands. I mean sitting there waiting for the empowerment, direction, and unity of the Spirit to launch something supernatural in and through your life. Some of us, thirdly, are not sure how to lead effective life-changing prayer experiences, and so we tend to give up on it. Uh, All pastors minister in a prayerless and success-oriented culture. I remember in in Utah one time, uh, an evangelical gathering, need to clarify that, uh, one guy was the chairman of a search committee, and he came up to me with a list of 85 qualities that his church had submitted uh, for their next pastor. And he went through, that's a, that's a great job description, isn't it? And he went through the list three times, and not once was man of prayer listed on the deal. Now, that may be an exception to the rule, but I think we would all admit most people want us to be skilled at a whole lot of other things and wear a good CEO hat, but to have a pastor spend significant amounts of time praying is usually not on the radar screen of the powers that be in your church. Another reason is that many of us want to avoid the embarrassment of a prayerless church. We tried to pray, and so few people show up, we got so embarrassed, we, uh, we bailed, right? I mean, that's the honest truth of it. Another one is some of us battle a prayerless personal life, and the enemy of our soul says, who are you to lead your church in prayer? Your prayer life stinks. I did figure this out. The best way to shut him up is start praying, right? Because uh, if I'm praying with my people, we all started praying more. So I have just uh, counteracted his um, attack there. Another one is many of us secretly question the efficacy of prayer. And I believe that uh, really our lack of prayer in today's society is that a lot of us in pastoral ministry really question, does prayer really work? And then lastly, every pastor is a special target of the enemy. You remember that old far side cartoon, the deer in the woods with the target on his chest and his buddy said, man, that's a bummer of a birthmark you got there, right? And, and the enemy hates praying pastors. He hates praying churches. He's going to do everything he can to dissuade, discourage, distract us. And so uh, that's just where we are. And let's just humbly be honest. You know, there's a lot of reasons. I'm not saying we're victims of these things, but there are factors that tend to keep us from really experiencing the fullness of what God has for us. So today I want to talk to you a little bit just about three thoughts, and one of them will bring us to a specific text. Uh, There you go, man. Thank you so much. Did it work okay? Uh, We already did that. About the extraordinary power of New Testament prayer. I want us to begin with definition. Uh, I mentioned earlier that definition determines destination. And I think one of the struggles we have uh, in our society today is most Christians have, I think, a uh, an unfortunate definition of prayer. If you were to ask the average American, what is prayer? Most of them would say prayer is talking to God, right? And we've often said that. The problem with that definition fundamentally is it makes God one big ear and us one big mouth. Uh, and so while that may be a part of prayer, that can't really be our fundamental definition. Others will say, well, it's telling God about my needs, which is basically a man-centered approach to prayer rather than a God-centered approach to prayer. Um, most people pray, you know, expecting that they're going to kind of give God the information he needs so that he'll structure the universe today, according to my specifications for happy and comfortable life, right? And if he'll do that, prayer's a good thing. Let me give you a definition that has been a game changer for me as we get ready to jump into a text. And it is very simply this. There you go, Mike. Thank you, brother. Um, Intimacy with God that leads to the fulfillment of His purposes. All right, would you say that with me? Intimacy with God that leads to the fulfillment of His purposes. 
I was just talking to a pastor friend a moment ago between sessions who's uh, got a lady in his church very disappointed. She's concluded God's not listening. And of course, she's concluded that because God didn't do what she expected Him to do. Uh, but that's a definition issue, isn't it? When we understand prayer as intimacy with God that leads to the fulfillment of His purposes, then that really becomes a game changer in terms of what our destination in prayer is going to be. And I just want to start with that because as we look into a biblical text today, I think you're going to find that to be germane to how the New Testament leaders prayed, uh, germane to how Jesus prayed, how Paul prayed, and uh, so vital for us if we're going to have the right destination to have the right definition. Now, I want to also just park on something before we jump into the text about what I call a crucial delineation of New Testament prayer, a delineation of New Testament prayer. In our earlier session, I touched on this briefly. But as you know, in Matthew chapter 6, uh, as well as in Luke chapter 11, Jesus gave the model prayer. We all know it. We could quote it. Um, the problem is that, as you know, Jesus didn't give us that so that we would quote it. He gave it to it so that we would live it and experience it. In both Luke 11, uh, when later on the disciples said, teach us to pray, Jesus gave kind of the Cliff Notes version of the model prayer. In Matthew 6, Jesus gave the more extended fashion on the Sermon of the Mount. And we all know that prayer. Now, let's be honest. If you're like me, you've preached on that passage. I've done 10-week series, you know, Hebrew background, Greek words. I threw in an Italian coffee shop, a French pastry, trying to make it interesting. People filled pages with notes, but they didn't learn how to pray. And so a number of years ago, it became clear to me what this pattern really looks like, and many of you have discovered this already. But the reason I want to highlight this is because as we get into a New Testament uh, illustration of prayer, you're going to see how vital this was. So I call it, and some of you have seen this in some of uh, the books we've done, I call it the 4-4 pattern of prayer. And uh, that comes from my musical background. You all know this basic pattern. Uh, and uh, it, it kind of converged in my mind as to what Jesus was doing here. So I'm going to go ahead and play this out and just walk through it real quickly. And uh, I'll tell you personally, it's been a real uh, game changer in my own life. Uh, one of my buddies said that I've reached the age of balding, bifocals, bulging, and bunions. That's uh, the old man's version of head, shoulders, knees, and toes, right? Uh, but I always got these bifocals on, and, and in all truth, every time I look at the Bible, it's as if this pattern is on my glasses, and I just see this springing from the pages of Scripture in terms of a pattern to pray. So very quickly, let me just play this out. I, I, I say it starts upward, just like the musical pattern, with what I call reverence. These all start with R because I went to seminary and got that brain damage. But uh, reverence, which if you look at the model prayer, is what? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Uh, again, you know this, but all biblical prayer starts with God's face and not His hand. Uh, it starts with who God is and not our need. And that's very counterintuitive to the way most of us have learned to pray in our churches, and in fact, maybe the way we've even taught our own people to pray. But it starts with who He is, our Father who art in heaven. Then it moves what I call downward in response. The next movement of that prayer, Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because worship basically is the response of all I am to the revelation of all He is, right? 
Uh, that's what worship is. And so having worshiped God out of the pages of Scripture in my prayer life, not asking Him for anything, just giving Him what He's worthy of, is automatically going to lead to a response of submission of my mind, my heart, my agenda to God's intentions and purposes. I always say it's really like trading in my agenda for God's, my will for God's, my, my, even my prayer list for God's, so that I'm praying according to His will and His kingdom purposes. It's a game changer. In fact, I've come to conclude I don't even know what to pray about until I have worshipped well and surrendered completely. And then at that point, I am praying in the Spirit. At that point, I am praying in Jesus' name, which has nothing to do with three words we tack on at the end. It has to do with a framework, a mindset, a spirit of submission and surrender to the purposes of Jesus. And so rev reverence and response. And then, as you know, we get into our requests. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Uh, I would just stutter at that point very quickly and offer two words to you, and it is this, resources and relationships. Could you say that with me? Resources and relationships. Daily bread is what kind of need? It's a resource need, isn't it? The stuff we need, the support for our ministry, the strength for our children, wisdom for our decisions. Those are all our daily bread needs. But then there are those relationship needs. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. That our relationship be vital, Christ-honoring. And by the way, if you look at any prayer list, everything on there is either a resource need or a relationship need. Jesus obviously understood, didn't He, what we would need to trust Him for. And so you begin with worship, and then you move to surrender and response. Then you move to your requests, and you pray about those things. Again, it's not worship-only prayer. It's just worship-based prayer that then helps us to frame and understand what we should pray about. I said in the workshop earlier, I've learned over the years that the Holy Spirit has a prayer list that's usually much more significant than mine, but I don't discover it unless I've worshiped well and surrendered completely, and then uh, I'm aligned with His heart, His will, and His intentions. Now, it'd be great if you could pray all day, but you can't. you got to get off your knees and get into battle. And that's where that last part of the prayer, so often neglected, but is so vital. Now lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from email. And is that sense of, uh, just seeing if you're still awake, uh, deliver us from evil. Uh, it is that sense of getting battle ready. Literally, the rendition is, Lord, we're going to encounter this. Don't let us get stuck in it. And, and so that's another part of a vital bounce part of prayer. I said to the group earlier, every prayer time I lead in my own personal prayer life always begins with an open Bible. Because the best way to talk to God is from His own Word. And uh, I would conclude with you that that's why this is so vital in terms of this part of prayer, because the best way to get battle ready is what? To have the Word of God planted in your heart and in your mind. So that prayer and the Word as a personal discipline, as a corporate experience, are so vitally linked. And you see this pattern that Jesus gave. It's in Luke 11. It's in Matthew 6. Again, the words are different, but the pattern is the same. Reverence, then response, then request, then readiness for battle. And I would suggest to you that that becomes a biblical balanced prayer life, but it also now becomes the model that becomes transformational in the life of a church. I don't know about you, but the prayer meetings I grew up in, in fact, I grew up with a strong aversion to prayer. I, I tell people often I had a drug problem as a child. 
Uh, my parents drug me to the old-fashioned Wednesday night prayer meeting every week of my life, and some of you have been at those. And my gift of sarcasm kicks in at this point, but as I look back at them, uh, we would start at 7 o'clock. Uh, we would sing a few songs that felt like sanctified versions of 99 bottles of beer on the wall. Uh, and then, uh, you know, some guy gave a devotion that he threw together his pickup truck, had nothing to do with prayer. And then came the dreaded question. You know the dreaded question, right? Does anybody have any? Prayer requests. And man, we were loaded for beer. I tell you, pulled out our yellow pads and our blue big pens, and it went on, and it went on, and it went on. And you know, pretty soon I'm thinking everybody in the country has an ingrown toenail, a slip disc, a cousin in financial crisis, a friend whose car broke down. I was so depressed, I didn't feel like praying, right? Uh, and of course, gossip got in there. We found out that Deacon Jones ran off with Matilda, the organ player, and his daughter was pregnant out of wedlock, and her son was ADD, and the you know dog Fido had cancer, or, you know whatever the case is. And we called that a prayer meeting. And finally, some wise guy looked at his watch and said, "We're almost out of time. We better pray." I mean, well, there's an idea, right? And so we'd circle up in our little circles, and we engaged in what I affectionately call the banal bless be with syndrome. You've probably been in these prayer meetings. We, we almost, uh, you know, it's almost superstitious. We had to make sure we mentioned everything on those lists, and we're going through our list. Lord, bless him, bless that, be with her, be with that, turn the page, bless me, bless me, bless me. Finally run out of time, and, and they say, hey, thanks for coming. We'll see you next week. And I'm thinking, man, I hope I can stay home and watch reruns of Hogan's Heroes. This thing is painful, right? Now, I say all that because that's a far cry from what you see here, generally. And I think we have a biblical obligation to understand that when Jesus said, pray this way, it was not a suggestion. I've become increasingly convinced that Jesus actually meant what he said when he said, pray this way. Now, again, I'm a creative type, and I mentioned in our workshop earlier, you know, I've created all kinds of prayer guides. They all start with the same letter. You know, we got the Axe model, Slacks model, Fax model, Tracks model, got all our models, and that's fine. We got so many adjectives to describe different forms of prayer, and I won't pick on any of them in particular, but I would say that God has continued to put in my heart, if Jesus said, pray this way, then I need to put my tradition, my creativity, my desire to try to pump up prayer with some new element on the shelf, and I need to dial into this approach to prayer because he had his very best intentions in mind for me when he told me to pray this way. And by the way, I would mention in Matthew 6, it was not really a directive about personal prayer because all the pronouns were plural. You ever thought about that? And so this was what they were going to experience in community, the kind of praying that he wanted his church to experience as they began to move into the mission of church planting. So with that in mind now, I want to just show you, and we're going to really close with this text, a, what I would call a compelling demonstration of New Testament prayer in Acts chapter 4, verses 23 uh, through 31, all right? So you can turn there. We're going to just walk through it briefly and uh, then begin to, to wrap up. In all my years of teaching, I never saw this literally until just the last few weeks. So this is not, uh, you know, some standard message. This has really become fresh and new to me. But as we get ready to look at that, I want to just basically have you imagine with me showing up at a concert hall and a master conductor gearing up to lead a symphony orchestra in Handel's Messiah. The strings are tuned, the woodwind section is ready, the brass section is in place, the percussionists are set, the conductor steps to the platform, raises his baton, and at that magic moment lowers it as the audience waits with bated breath, and instantaneously something goes wrong, horribly wrong. 
Even though every member has a copy of Handel's Messiah on their stand, they all instead begin to play whatever they want. Any tune that comes to their mind, anything from Bach to rock. And what was supposed to be a beautiful symphony becomes a disconnected collection of tunes uh, that makes no sense, that's incoherent, uh, that's obviously somewhat irritating to those who have come to listen. And as pandemonium fills the air, everybody is left in confusion and are baffled. Now, I use that illustration because I would suggest to you that that is a picture of what very typically happens at a prayer meeting. Everybody just plays their own tune. In fact, I used to start prayer meetings by saying, let's all just pray as we feel led, right? Now, what I thought I meant was led by the Holy Spirit, but it got lost in translation, and what instead happened is everybody just prayed whatever came to their mind. And it sounded and felt a lot like what I just described. I would suggest to you that as we think about infusing prayer into our new churches and our established churches and into our own lifestyle, that the Holy Spirit is the conductor and the sheet music is the Word of God. And the more we can allow the Holy Spirit to conduct our praying with His mind, His heart, His will out of the Word of God, the more beautiful and powerful will the symphony of our praying be. And so as you look at Acts chapter 4, we come to an amazing moment where we see the early church actually practicing what Jesus told them to do. Now, this never hit me before, but if you look at Acts, we know that they did pray. There's many instances that they prayed. There are not very many instances where we know exactly what they prayed, right? Now, in the upper room, we know that uh, based on the Word of God, uh, they decided we need to replace Judas, right? And so there was a, a little bit of a prayer there. Lord, you know the hearts of all men. Show us who you've chosen. Uh, individually, we know that... Um, Stephen, when he was being martyred, he said, Lord, receive my spirit, right? Uh, when Saul was struck on the road to Damascus, he said, you know, who are you, Lord? What would you have me do? But think about it. We don't really have records of what they prayed, except in Acts chapter 4. And here is a church planting team. All right, let's make this very relevant. They're doing pretty well so far. Thousands of people in the first few days uh, have, have come into the church. Maybe you've had those results too. But uh, this is a pretty amazing uh, uh, you know, watermark for all of us. And I even pulled out the good old, some of you will know this resource, Herbert Lockyer, All the Prayers of the Bible. Anybody ever seen that book? I mean, the word prayer can be listed. He can write three pages on that, right? So I went through his extrapolation of Acts, and truth be told, this is the singular most significant example of what the church prayed and how they prayed. And what you're going to see today is the parallel between the pattern Jesus gave them and the way they actually prayed together, all right? So that's where I want us to pick up in Acts chapter 4, verses 31. This is a prayer meeting that occurs after Peter and John are threatened, as you know, by the Sanhedrin. And, and it is what I would call uh, Scripture-fed, Spirit-led, worship-based prayer. Uh, that's kind of become a mantra of my life. In fact, I want to make sure it's on my tombstone. Uh, I tell my kids all these things I want on my tombstone. Some of you do the same thing. My kids are complaining they can't afford that tombstone. Uh, I did find out recently, though, that they're now putting QR codes on tombstones, which I think is a great idea. You can just stop by with your smartphone and, and get all this stuff, right? And vice versa. I kind of figure by the time I'm dead, we'll have holograms, and you stop by, push the button, I'll pop up. Hey, Bruce, welcome. Pull up a chair. Let me tell you a few things that have marked my life.
life, right? Uh, but this is one, Scripture-fed, Spirit-led, worship-based prayer. I think you're going to find that embedded in this passage, which I believe is so incredibly profound. So in Acts chapter 4, it begins by telling us here, as the text unfolds, that Peter and John came back to the church when they were released, and they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said. And then it says in verse 24, And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, All right? So let me pause right there. Homothumadon is the word there. They lifted their voices together to God. Literally, it's a concert of voices that are whole, and catch this, in a state of union. So Peter and John didn't really come back and say, Hey, let's just all pray as we feel led, right? They didn't come back and say, Hey, did any of you have any prayer requests? Now, I know I'm, I'm being a little sarcastic here, but I think what we see them doing instinctively now is exactly aligned what Jesus told them to do in the nature of their praying. Now, can you imagine, had Peter just said, let's all praise, we feel led, what might have happened? I mean, Peter might have said, oh, Lord, help me, I'm so fearful, you know, and John, Lord, I'm battling anxiety, help me get a doctor's appointment. You know, I mean, nothing wrong with any of that. Uh, some people would have been calling down fire on the Jewish leaders. Some people would have been making prayer announcements about their protest plans, you know, or the petitions they're going to sign, or who knows what else. I mean, there's a lot of things that could have happened had they all just prayed what was on their mind. And that's not what they did. So I want you to notice, and again, I don't want to, to be uh, too overbearing on this, but I think you're going to see the pattern here of, sorry, thanks, Mike, of, of what's happening here. And they begin with reverence. Notice, if you will, in verse 24. And they lifted their voices together to God and said, what is it? What's the next two words? Anybody? Sovereign Lord. So they begin with the face of God, didn't they? They begin with the truth of who He is. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Sovereign Lord who made heaven and the earth and the sea and everything that is in them. The, the initial focus of their praying, in spite of these incredibly challenging circumstances, was the character of God. And uh, commentators have noticed they, they're really borrowing directly from a number of biblical passages. Exodus 20.11, it says, The Lord made the heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. Sounds very familiar, doesn't it? Hezekiah's prayer in Isaiah 37, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, You are God, You alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, You have made the heaven and the earth. Nehemiah, similar, You've made the heavens, the heavens of the heavens, and all their hosts. Jeremiah 32, 17, some of you recognize this, O Lord God, it is You who have made the heavens and the earth by Your great power. Nothing is too difficult for You. So we don't know if this is the exact transcription of the prayer or the summary of the prayer, but what the early church did in this church planting journey in the midst of incredible crisis, they first and foremost declared the character of God. They reverenced Him and they said, uh, Sovereign Lord who made the heavens and the earth. And then notice what they did next. They quote directly from the Old Testament. Now, when it says they raised their voice in one accord, we don't know if, what that means. Peter prompted them and they all prayed together. Uh, it, some commentators said they all sang Psalm 2. We don't know. 
But notice they continue their praying, a direct quote from the Septuagint uh, version of Psalm 2, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. So these believers are now, first of all, reverencing God and then again, continuing to declare who he is based on the word of God and really framing their circumstance out of that kind of praying. What a life-changing thing that is. John Piper says it this way. He's always stealing my material. I need to write him one of these days. But uh, he says it this way. He says, where the mind is not brimming with Scripture, the heart is seldom brimming with prayer. In his autobiography, George Mueller talked about the fact that for years he tried to pray without opening his Bible, and his mind inevitably wandered. How many of you ever had that experience of your mind wandering in prayer? All right, the rest of your mind's wandering right now. Just raise your hand anyway. But uh, yeah, I, he said, my mind wandered. But he went on to say that when I started in the book, I was able to pray in extended and passionate fashion for years to come. Now, that's not just a Muellerism. That's a New Testament model. And this early church, in the most distinctly authoritative recorded prayer of what they did together, starts with the character of God praying out of the Word of God. Now, I, I think what you see here next then is response. Thank you, Mike, for uh, you're already ahead of me there. I, you see their response coming out of this because notice what they say. Now they, they, in prayer, offer their own personal commentary on what the implications of Psalm 2 might be. They say, Lord, for truly and now in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. And notice this line, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So you may or may not agree with this statement. It might be too strong, but I think what they're doing there now, they are surrendering to the plan and purpose and kingdom um, intentions of God. Saying, Lord, we're now surrendering whatever your hand has decided to take place. That's the application of what we just read. That's the application of what we just worshiped. And, and you know, later Peter would exemplify this when in 1 Peter 2 he said, we are called to walk in his steps. And he spoke of Jesus, who when he was reviled, he reviled not in return. When he suffered, he threatened not, but he submitted himself to God who judges righteously. So I think you see in the movement of this prayer, they begin with, with uh, the essence of our Father art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And now they are moving to now your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So somehow they got it. Somehow, as they gathered in prayer, they, they were realizing Jesus did mean what he say, said. And in the midst of this crisis, with all the emotion and feeling and struggle and questions we've got, we're going to pray together as he taught us to pray. It's fascinating, isn't it? And now they move into requests. And if you look at verse 29, we see what they essentially pray. They say, and now, Lord, look upon their threats. There's a sense in which they are saying, Lord, we have this assurance and need this assurance that you know what's going on here and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Isn't that awesome? Now they're praying kingdom purposes. They're praying the agenda of the Holy Spirit. And again, they were human just like us. There could have been a plethora of other things they prayed about. But their request was, Lord, now, now see where we are, know what we're dealing with, and now fill us with the Word of God that we may speak the Word of God with boldness. 
One pastor friend of mine said concerning our modern day praying, he says, most of us spend more prayer energy praying sick Christians out of heaven than praying lost people out of hell. <laughs> now again, God cares about all those needs. And the more we worship Him, the more that we realize He's got it covered. But, but we need to be on His wavelength. Prayer is intimacy with God that leads to the fulfillment of His purposes. Do you see it here? Do you see that definition being played out in how the early church prayed? And so this was the request. And then I would just suggest there's a sense now of readiness. Pick up with me in verse 30. Lead us not in temptation. Deliver us from evil. Help us be battle ready. And they're calling on God to do things by His power that only He can do so that they can win the battle of the moment. And verse 30, they say this, While you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were together was shaken. Uh, it must have been California, I guess, right? But the place was shaken. There was this, this supernatural demonstration, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continue to speak the Word of God with boldness. Now let me take a survey. How many of you would love to have that kind of a prayer meeting in your church plant? Anybody? Wow. So it's really not a mystery. It is a matter of definition. What is prayer? It's a matter of understanding the delineation Jesus gave and living with the conviction that He meant what He said. And then there's this amazing demonstration of the early church aligning themselves in, in the most clear, specific experience of how and what they prayed that compels us to say again, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. So as we wrap up, the extraordinary power of New Testament prayer reclaimed. And that next slide, thank you, Mike. Reclaimed. How do we reclaim this? Well, uh, let's just talk turkey. It, it starts with us in this room, doesn't it? Uh, I, I said it earlier, the prayer life of any church will never rise any higher than the personal example and passion of the senior leader. It's never happened. And now you can have a prayer team, you can have prayer warriors, but you won't have a praying church unless we lead the way. And so, um, again, School of Hard Knocks in my own life, the journey we're all in, I would suggest, first of all, it, it requires a change in our paradigm in prayer. Uh, go ahead, Mike. Thank you. A change in our paradigm in prayer and just personally beginning to seek God's face before we seek His hand. Just reframing our praying that way. And I often say, if all you ever do is seek God's hand, you may miss His face. But if you seek His face, He will be glad to open His hand. And again, this model of prayer, however you break it down, whether it's four movements or two or ten, uh, there's no way to denying Jesus intended us primarily to pray, first of all, to seek Him. And then to allow Him to share His heart with us, so that as we then share our heart with Him, we are accomplishing His purposes for our lives. What an amazing transformation would occur in our churches if we could learn that. I wish I could tell you story after story of people in our own church who, who really began to understand what it meant to seek God's face out of His Word in prayer and to surrender to the Holy Spirit and then to begin to pray about things from that framework, trusting Him for their resource needs, their relationship needs, and then understanding the vital role of prayer and getting them battle ready for the challenges of daily life. But it's going to take a change of paradigm. And then lastly, as we're up, a change in our priorities in ministry a change in our priorities in ministry. 
And I want to just kind of move forward two chapters very briefly to remind you that when that crisis occurred later on with the widow feeding program, um, that that was just another attack. You know, the enemy attacked the early church constantly. It was through persecution. In Acts chapter 5, it was corruption, Ananias and Sapphira lying to the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 5, more persecution. By the time we get to chapter 6, it's, it's really distraction and division, isn't it? Uh, when this uh, uprising occurred because of the unintentional neglect of the Greek-speaking widows. And I would just suggest to you again that, that the reason the early church prayed the way they did was not only because they knew the Holy Spirit was the how-to, but because their leaders knew that that's how they had to lead the church. And, um, I, you know, you can imagine if something that major broke down in your church and things are kind of falling apart, the pressure on you to fix it, Right? And they said, no, we must give ourselves, and that is a reference to their corporate leadership culture. That was not a reference to their personal prayer lives. We will give ourselves continue to prayer in the ministry of the Word, and then we're going to select seven Spirit-filled wise men to take this task on. So let me simply say that in, in the context of ministry today, we are bombarded with expectations. Uh, the great theologian Bill Cosby used to say the best way to go crazy is to try to please everybody, right? Um, and the other way to go crazy is try to do everything. So somewhere in there, we've got to set priorities to help us filter all of these demands. And the way I've learned, and I often say to pastors, is that the power of no isn't a stronger yes. In other words, the strength to say no to all the other expectations and demands and distractions is the ability to clarify what your yeses are. And as I coach pastors, so many of them have not clarified what their personal ministry priorities are. It's these 10, these 20 things I do, rather than a real clarity about what their calling is. I would suggest to you that in Acts chapter 3, the priorities are very clear. Prayer, the ministry of the Word, and then empowering and equipping others to lead. Right? The multiplication factor there at the end. But here's what's so interesting to me. If you look at the Old Testament... And you think about a leadership crisis there. Who do you think of who had so much to do that he had to, to make some hard choices? Anybody? Yeah, Moses in Exodus 18. And so Jethro, his father-in-law, came. And I did read that Jethro is the number one baby name in Houston this month. Um, no, it's really not. I'm teasing it. If you're Jethro, my apologies. But uh, Jethro came to him, and he got his attention, Right? And uh, if you ask the average person, what did Jethro tell him to do? Most of us would say he told him to delegate. But if you actually look at the text, that was one of three things that he told him to do. He said, Moses, listen to me, and the Lord will be with you. And I'm going to come back to that phrase as we close. He says, the Lord will be with you. And so then what he said to Moses in Exodus 18, 19, he says, number one, represent the people before God. What is that? prayer, right? Secondly, teach them the statutes of the Lord. That's the word. And thirdly, appoint judges. Fascinating to me that in both Exodus 18 and Acts 6, in the salient moments of leadership crisis, you have the same three priorities in the same order. Prayer, the word, and empowering others to lead. So as I said, I'm almost 59. I'm way too old to sound this naive. But I actually believe, you guys are thinking, we, we cannot invite a guy this dumb to speak to us again. But I actually believe that if every pastor in America decided to do those three things, 
it would transform the work of the gospel in our nation. I actually believe that. So here's the challenge. The devil doesn't have to destroy any of us in here. All he has to do is distract us. That's all he has to do. And he is launching weapons of mass distraction on all of our lives as we sit here today, more than ever before in the history of Christendom. Uh, and let's be honest, at least I'll speak for me, I find it a lot easier to serve Jesus than to seek him. Uh, but I, I need to come back to that place of Martha, myself, day after day, making those resolute choices, knowing how to say no to so many other things so that I can say yes to the best things, and actually believing that if I were to do that, something beyond what I've ever imagined could actually happen in my life and in the life of our church. So I know this is pretty direct and tough, but I really think it's a biblical paradigm of leadership. And um, so I'm going to really meddle here at the end and, and be honest with you. I, I, I would be the first perhaps to stand up at a, a recovery meeting and confess I am a leadershipaholic. <laughs> Over the years, I, I have collected more books on leadership than you can imagine. And it's an interesting no notion. More, uh, Warren Bennis and Bert Nana say there are over 850 definitions of leadership. So I don't even know what we're going after, but we sure like to talk about it, right? But I would suggest to you that um, the devil really doesn't care what we replace the Holy Spirit with as long as we replace him with something. And the more attractive and functional the, the uh, replacement is, the greater our tendency to go after it. I would suggest to you that we, boy, you, I, I know this is my last time. It's been great to be with you guys. Appreciate it. But I would suggest to you that we have almost made an idol out of the ideas of vision and leadership. And I'm speaking as one, okay? I mean, I've done scores of messages on vision and leadership. But if you actually look at what the Bible says about those things, we have overblown those things so much that I fear they have become a replacement to the work of the Holy Spirit through the priority of prayer. And again, what was listed as a supernatural gift has now become a strategy uh, and has become perhaps a um, kind of a default replacement to the original model of how church is supposed to be led. So one year I read through the Bible, I'm reading through the Bible this year again, but one year I read through the Bible just asking the Lord this question, so Lord, all right, I got all these leadership books, but, but what do you say about the people you use throughout the pages of Scripture? What do you say about it? And um, it wasn't quite what some of our modern day gurus say, unfortunately. But what I did find, very simple, every person in the Bible that God used significantly, there was one common denominator, and it was a little five-word phrase, the Lord was with him. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, David, Solomon in his early years, uh, Joshua, the handoff from Moses to Joshua, uh, the good kings, the good judges, even Mary. Halo, blessed one, you're the cutest little Jewish girl we can find. No, halo, blessed one, the Lord is what? With you. Last thing Jesus said, and lo, you will develop finely tuned leadership skills. You will have the art of visioning, unbelievably so. Uh, again, gift of sarcasm. Lo, what? I am with you always. And you know this in the early church, Peter and John, they were unlearned ignorant men, but they had what? Been with Jesus. So I know this is a dramatic proclamation, but I believe 
that what we're talking about today is really at the core of whether or not we're going to accomplish the mission of church planting and supernatural power in the city of Houston and beyond. And, and my struggle is today, I live in the ultimate achievement culture. Western society is the ultimate achievement culture. But I've come to believe that New Testament ministry is not achieved, it's received. And again, that doesn't mean we don't work hard. I'm a workaholic. You'd ask anybody I know. I sleep to me is an interruption, right? Uh, but I believe New Testament ministry is much more received than it is achieved. And that compels us to say, Lord, would you teach us again to pray? Final story, I was um, flying on a, a plane going to Lancaster, Pennsylvania to speak to a pastor's conference. And I was in a window seat. No one was in my row. And I was reading another book on leadership, no surprise. And as I closed that book, I had a moment that day with the Lord. And I just began to weep as I looked out the window. It wasn't anticipated. And what came to my mind was a simple prayer that on a daily basis has begun to change the trajectory of my life. I said, Lord, I'm so sorry because for these years I've been trying to be a power boat for Jesus. I grew up on a lake, so that was a natural analogy. And I kind of said, Lord, I've had my hand on the throttle of my leadership gifts. I've, I've had the whole of my type A personality cutting through the water. I got my tank filled with all my theological training, and I'm really doing things for Jesus. But then I prayed a prayer that day that has helped me day by day since then, and I simply said, Lord, would you teach me what it means to be a simple sailboat? Because a simple sailboat is dead in the water unless what? Unless the wind blows. And I'm not talking about a big regatta. I mean, you know, a piece of wood, a stick, a sheet, you know. But um, would you just teach me what that would mean? And what I love about the simple sailboat is that, that it doesn't bring glory to the boat. It brings glory to an unseen force without which nothing would happen. Now, it's an unpredictable journey, you know. You don't know where the wind's coming, where it's going, but... It's how I want to live. And I can tell you honestly, I've never regretted that prayer. And I'm trusting that for each of us today, as you think about this incredible opportunity of seeing a city where, what is it, 2,500 people a week are moving in here? What a great opportunity for God to do something that only God can do if we can learn to say yes to the best things, have the courage to say no to the other things, have the faith to believe that God will raise up people to do the work of ministry and then begin to pray with a fresh alignment with what Jesus told us to do and out of this illustration of what the early church experienced as they indeed complied with his wishes. So would you pray with me this afternoon? Father, thank you so much for the joy of being called by your name and Lord, I would be the first to want to say to you uh, that I need to learn again and again and again what this incredible window of understanding would mean in my life. Lord, I want to thank you so much for the accounts of the early church and what they did with so little and yet with so much. I thank you for their conviction and belief that the Holy Spirit is the how-to of ministry. And I pray that you would help us, Lord, to come day after day after day into that conviction. And uh, Lord, as I look at the trends of our nation today, I recognize that there is very possibly a sifting coming. And I know it'll be a gift in disguise because, uh, Lord, a, a pure church is a powerful church and a praying church is a powerful church. So Lord, whatever it takes, 
that we would see Jesus Christ living through a revived people, Lord, would you allow us to step into that with you? And God, thank you so much for all the tools you have given us. And we want to be careful to steward those tools. But Lord, we also want to be careful to simply use them rather than rely upon them. And so give to us a spirit of prayer, commitment to your word, strong belief in the sufficiency of your spirit to raise up those who will do the work of ministry. And God, would you do in this city and through these dear servants things that only you can do in the days to come. And may Jesus be praised and glorified as churches are planted, lives are changed. And I think, Lord, of Acts chapter 6, where it said the word of God continued to spread and the, the disciples multiplied greatly and a great many priests became obedient to the faith. Out of that environment of prayer, you did so much. And may you do it also here in Houston, throughout this great state, our nation, and our world. We pray this for your glory, and for the advancement of your gospel. And everyone said, amen, amen. Thank you so much. I don't know who's, am I closing or, oh, somebody, all right, we got the, the cool young guy coming. All right, thank you, man. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.